Welcome to the final episode, the season finale of Spock the Week Season 2. This is an extended episode, so please sit back, relax, enjoy yourself, as we had tremendous amounts of fun recording this episode, and we hope you have just as much fun listening to it. So without further ado, let's hand over to myself, Gregor Cameron, and our very special guest. everybody to another episode of Spock the Week and the final episode of season two and as promised we have with us a very special guest the ultimate doctor better than Robert Picardo it is the very same say that again say that again just keep saying that over and over again <laughs> the ultimate doctor the ultimate take that doctor and take that Casey Fadden <laughs> Welcome, John Billingsley, to Spock the Week. We have our first Star Trek alumni on Spock the Week. And uh, I'm sorry to say, John, that your career has finally ended. You've made it on Spock the Week. It does not go well after this, I'm afraid. Oh, that's all right. I was on the show that killed the franchise, for God's sake. I don't expect much from myself. It's a low <laughs> bar, and I barely climb over it. Well, you'll not be disappointed. I always, I always say that in hopes of getting people all riled up. Everybody jumps to the show's defense. No, no, it didn't kill. No, it was wonderful. No. Like, ah, yeah, oh, yeah. Where were you when we needed you? Huh? <laughs> I see a lot online. I see a lot online of people saying, you know, I turned off the show after about three episodes and hated it. Now that I'm watching it in syndication, I'm really liking it. It's like, yeah, but I was getting paid then. I needed you to watch it then. Well, let's put it this way. I think you and Gregor are going to get on swimmingly in this conversation. because oh, is he another uh, one who ditched the show and he's now he's come crawling back on his belly trying to beg forgiveness? Okay, I did not ditch it after three episodes. I waited till the end of season two. Oh, the end so, of season two. Okay. I didn't even make it to the end of season two. It was a hologram acting I, all the way I, through season three and four. I've got mitigating circumstances because it was on Channel 4 here for the first two seasons and then Rupert Murdoch bought it for his Sky Channel and I refused to give Beelzebub money. I understand that. I truly, actually, in all candor, you know, as an actor, we get auditions for Fox shows and believe me, it is, it is like, you know, oh, God almighty, Joseph Goebbels has invited me to appear on his variety (laughs) hour. What do I say? Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. The problem is you cannot move through this world unsullied. Every step you take, you know, you attract mud, filth, and slime in this this fallen. And I think it's a bit more it's a bit more sort of prevalent now we've got social media and everything like that, sort of following everybody around, you know. Uh, with the yeah, uh, I mean that's the thing. Do you participate in social media? If you consider that social media and the rise of social media has cast a Paul over the world for various reasons. Well, here we all are, you know. I mean, you follow your the philosopher Pete Singer, who I sort of half admire and half want to punch in the nose. 
basically in essence says something to the effect of follow your moral uh, imperatives to their logical conclusion and you should give almost every penny you make away to the poor and it's like but i like but i want coffee and scones and you know it's like ah damn you pete singer yeah, I, I hate I hate to get I hate to get all serious so soon. You know how I haven't even let you ask a single question I, I yet. This <laughs> is my goal in interviews is to actually make it impossible for the interviewer to ever actually ask a question. This, is, this is going to be great for the next hour, then John and I just oh, going definitely. Each other trying to I interrupted your introduction. You didn't get to finish. You didn't get to say all the things you wanted to say. Well, okay, I'm going to come back to your Pete Singer thing. And I, obviously, with the, you know, I don't want to get too serious, but with heavens, heavens for everything, with everything that's going on in the last 12 months, you know, I, I seen a statistic the other day that Jeff Bezos could actually pay every single one of his 1 million employees. Hundred and five thousand dollars, and he would still have the same amount of money that he had before the lockdown. Now it's interesting that his ex-wife is actually come out and very publicly said, "I am going to give all my money away." Mm -hmm. She has subsequently married a public school teacher. Well, actually, she's a private school teacher, but he's still a teacher, and they are essentially invested in this uh, this activity now, figuring out how to divest themselves of the entire fortune. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a big movement afoot. Gates participates in it. Um, that uh, fellow, the uh, guy who's made all of his money in uh, in, uh, in investing in, in uh, what's his name? Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett. Yeah, yeah. Warren Buffett. Uh, Warren Buffett is is into that. I mean, I, you know, huzzah for those guys. <sighs> you know, um, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not going to give all my money away. I'm going to actually, uh, yeah. I'm taking it with me when I fucking go. I'm taking yeah. it into into the coffin with me well, in gold doubloons. Yeah, well, so where, I, where, where, where are you going to be buried? Just so we know for future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I was thinking of Scotland, but that's out now. That's off the list. I'm going to make it hard for you guys. You're going to have to track me the fuck down. <laughs> so, um, Gregor mentioned just uh, about that uh, you, you'd met in, was it 2017? Uh, yeah, did you say 2017? Yeah. Uh, yeah. In Quark's Bar in Las Vegas at the Convention. Yeah, it was on the Sunday when the convention's winding down, John, and it was August 2017. And my partner Sarah and I, we were just standing in Quark's Bar having a beer, and uh, you came over and joined us for a beer. And we had, we, it was the least Star Trek conversation of the weekend. We talked about the Grenfell fire, we talked about some of the stuff that you were doing uh now and then we finished off by saying we were going to death valley the next day and you said are you guys fucking crazy oh death valley in august uh, that sounds like me so i just came over i just crashed your conversation just, yeah just uh, i mean yeah. we, weren't, we weren't even want we didn't even want you to come over. you didn't you even want me there i know you were like just putting up uh, i know you were trying to ignore me i vaguely remember that i <laughs> did i i made you buy me drinks didn't i didn't i like yeah. it yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's good. It's good to be on Star Trek, man. They're all you can get away with all sorts of shit. You could never get away with in real life. Everybody in this bar is buying me a drink. You understand? You know the daft the daft thing is is that people people actually do that. I mean, it, honestly, if 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 somebody like yourself oh, yeah. and I'm a minor, vaguely recognizable celebrity, you can imagine what like Paul Newman could have gotten away with. Well, I don't another. Another of my celebrity beer stories from that convention was in the Masquerade Bar. 
uh, around about 2.30 in the morning, Von Armstrong came over. Oh, that yeah, guy, I, I, you don't need to say no more, say no more. I think he had had uh, a couple of half pints of beer at this mm -hmm. point. Possibly. Uh, as I had, and I'm, sit I'm standing with two of my friends from Glasgow, uh, the two Nicholas that we call them, and he says, where Vaughn says, where are you guys from? And uh, we said, Scotland. And he went, I'm Scottish, in an American accent, as is Amer <laughs> a lot of Americans want to reclaim their heritage. And I was like, just, just because your name's Armstrong doesn't make you fucking Scottish. <laughs> then, we had, then we had a beer, he took it well, you know. So. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> Did, did he have symbols attached to his kneecaps? You know, when he got on Star Trek, uh, he, he immediately got the idea. I mean, he had been a guest star in a number of different shows, mm -hmm. playing a number of different species. I think he may actually have played more species than any other Star Trek actor. But when he got on Enterprise, he thought, how can I parlay this into an extra nickel? So he created the Vaughn Armstrong one-man band. This then led eventually to the Star Trek band that he formed. But when I first saw him in his initial incarnation as a one-man show, he had like a pair of cymbals glued to his kneecaps. And he had like a, I don't know, he managed to figure out how to turn his whole body into a musical instrument. It was a rather discordant performance, but you admired the moxie, is what I would say. Um, like any good actor, it's like, how can I monetize this? Yeah. I mean, my, I mean, do Connor and Dominic they monetize the uh, the Enterprise karaoke in Vegas? <laughs> oh my God, no, no, not the karaoke per se, but they certainly, you know, oh, I'm not going to make fun of Dominic and Connor because it's going to come back at me. <laughs> oh, we found state. it. We found it. We found, we found it. the weak spot. We found the weak spot. I <laughs> have learned my. <laughs> I should have said, I've learned my lesson. I am not going to say that they would go to the opening of an envelope if there was a nickel involved. I am not going to say that. That is going to get me in deep shit. Whereas I, of course, in pure as a driven snow, I do, I do yeah. not. I'm not like you guys aren't paying me for this. Are you paying me for it? Uh, are we paying yeah, him we'll for do, it? We'll, yeah, we'll do our GoFundMe page. There we go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, no, I love those boys, actually. I, that, that's one of the great, I really miss getting to go to the conventions. I mean, of course, we all have, you know, things we miss about this horrible, this horrible episode in our, in our history. But, um, you know, for me, I love to travel and getting all of our trips and various expeditions knocked out from under us. And God knows how long it's going to be till we're going to be able to travel the world again. It's a, it's a loss. I do, well, when we had our conversation in Clarksborough, one of the, the, the things that you did say to me, and trust me, I, I hadn't done this already, but you said, please don't judge America on Vegas. <laughs> oh, oh, don't judge America on America, if it comes to that. It's like, you know, I, I, there are nine decent people who live here. I know six of them. I've not met the other three, but we are a nation of lunatics right now. My God! Oh, and we let him Joe. Good old Joe. On, oh. Honestly, honestly, I—I I mean, I'm not very a political person, but just, just watching everything that's been going off, uh, it, it's like, I when I when I was growing up, I was watching films like Smokey and the Bandit and Convoy and programs like Little House on the Prairie and a few other like say nondescript uh, programs and stuff like that, you know, and. I grew up with this image of America that I still hold dear and watching everything that's been going off over the last 12 months, I'm like, what are you doing? 
you're ruining the painting. You're ruining it. What's going on? Well, it's always been it's always been there, and I'm not going to America bash. I mean, you know, there's much that is a wonderful book. That I mean, I'm extremely political in, in point of fact, but we don't have to go mm -hmm. there. But uh, there's a wonderful book that came out um, recently by a woman named Jill Lepore called These Truths. Uh, terrific staff writer for the New Yorker, and it's a 800 page narrative history of America. And I think it does a great job capturing the um, the dichotomies and the contradictions. I mean, it is inarguably true that the words we created and the values we espouse had tremendous meaningfulness for the world. And I, I honor that. Our failure to live up to those values <laughs> However, and the hypocrisy with which we trumpet them while simultaneously invalidating them on the ground really makes you shake your head. I mean, it's not just what's happened in the last year or four years. It's what's been happening arguably ever since the passage of the Civil Rights Act and, you know, since 1619 in America. I mean, racism is America's stain. Of course, it's, it's kind of Britain's stain, too. So, oh, you know, I think it's... It's a stain on humanity, let's be honest with you. It, I mean, yeah, it is. No, what, it is. What have we ever done? What have we ever done? You know, India and all that stuff. That was, that was fine. South Africa was fine. You know. Yeah. No, I, I know. I know. I know. But, but, um, but hey, I you got rid of slavery before we did. I mean, you know. Well, yeah. You kind of didn't really get rid of colonialism for a long time. But no, I, don't, no. I, I don't know Nobody's about getting perfect. rid of. I don't know about getting rid of slavery because uh, every time I go to work, it feels like I'm. Uh, uh well what do you do uh, i'm a bus driver of all glamorous things ah. Ah. He's, he's a tax man how did you guys uh how did you guys come together i'm gonna ask you questions now how, how, oh, yeah, did, this, yeah. how did this romance start? well I'll, I'll field this one um this one came out of it literally came through star trek um we, uh, I discovered the, um, the Starfleet International chapter, the USS Alba, which I duly became a member of. And um, I see we went for the first, we obviously pre-lockdown, we'd go out for meetings, go to the pub, have meals, watch parties, stuff like that. And the first night out I went on, there was me, the, the commanding officer of this, uh, the chapter, um, Gregor and Sarah, and I think a couple of other people that I can't mind off the top of my head who were there. And it just started from there. And it all started off because I went to the bathroom and I left my phone on the table. When I came back to the table and picked up my phone, there was about 20 photographs of Gregor, Sarah, all posing and doing all sorts of funny, as many pictures as they can. Because even if your phone's locked, you can still open up the camera and take a few snaps and, and whatnot. So that's what they did. And it just started from started from there and uh, he um his uh, partner sarah is a rugby league fan uh and a wigan uh Wigan rugby team fan i'm a arch rival fan uh the castleford tigers um oh the castleford tigers um so that sort of uh, the banter about that started getting on, and that's pretty much. Greg is probably going to tell a different story, like, but <laughs> it's the it's honest, honestly, it's the War of the Roses. Sarah's from Lancashire, and JJ's from Yorkshire. It's the War of the Roses whenever they start talking about the rugby. 
Ah, yeah. Now, and where are you guys actually situated geographically? You in the same? You live in the same city? Yes. Um, yeah, we're both in Edinburgh. Um, literally, le what, less than three miles apart. Yeah, so ah. two, two to three miles away. I've so. been to Edinburgh on on several occasions. It's a lovely and place. My, it's a lovely place. My wife played the Fringe Festival many, many, many oh, years. Oh, cool, cool. Well, if you ever make it back, we'll take you to for a beer in some of the proper pubs. You are on. I always like to go with the locals and find out where the disreputable parts of town are. You, oh, we'll have through. to take we'll have to take them to the pubic triangle then. Oh yeah, the excellent. Triangle. I love it already. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna share that part with the missus. But did you did you did you meet the missus, Gregor, when I accosted you in the bar and tried to get you to buy us liquor? Uh, no, you were just on your own. Uh, just know, that's why I did it. I, I, well, I say on your own. Uh, Robert Duncan McNeil, Bobby Mc, um, had been there as well. Is he hanging on my arm the way he does sometimes? He yeah, is, uh, yeah, he, he was, yeah. So, uh -huh. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I mean, JJ was talking about some of the, the TV shows that shaped America for him. So here's a list of some of the TV shows that I watched, you know, because obviously JJ wasn't in... You weren't in any of the shows that I'm aware of that JJ watched, but here's some of the shows that I watched. Uh, NYPD Blue, The X-Files, The West Wing, Star Trek Enterprise, Stargate SG-1, Prison Break, The Closer. What a coincidence that yeah, I have. NCIS, True Blood, 24, The Mentalist, Suits. Did you meet Megan, by the way? Oh, he went I did. there. No, no, I did. I crossed her path <laughs> he went in, the, in, the, in the makeup trailer. But yeah. we did not have scenes together. And uh, other than kind of like, you know, waving at her, we did not have a, a conversation. Yeah. Turn, um, turn Washington Spies. I watched that fairly recently. Yes. Twin Peaks, Lucifer, and the Orville. And funnily mm. enough, you were in all those shows. I was in all the shows, and many that are too embarrassing to even mention that uh, fortunately are not appearing on your list, and many that nobody's ever heard of because they never advanced beyond the pilot stage. Well, I'll tell you what, though, John, there are some truly landmark shows in that list. You know, obviously Enterprise, which is probably I'm not more, sure I put that on the landmark it's list. Probably there, more but, more yeah. popular now than it ever was. Ever was. It's interesting that it's interesting how people have kind of rediscovered it. I mean, I, I think when it came on, there was Star Trek fatigue. You know, mm -hmm. there there had not been a break since Next Generation appeared, and in a couple of seasons there were even overlaps when two Star Trek shows were on at the same time. And I know Rick and Brannon. I mean, they were running on fumes in all candor. By the time we came on the air, they had really. I, they deserved a break and they just weren't given a break so they were kind of having to rush our show into production and I I think if they just had a little more prep time a little time to kind of cogitate where they wanted to go with the show you know the temporal time war I think was unfortunate choice for kicking us off um, and I think that was a little bit I don't want to say foisted upon them by the network but um, they, they didn't have as much freedom as I think they deserved to have and they certainly didn't have the prep time they deserved. But it, now, now, with the passage of time, people can appreciate the things that were okay about the show, I think. Well, I, I, I mean, my opinion, if I can be candid with you, is that the worst thing Ooh, I, can, I, about, the worst ding, thing ding, I ding. can say about the first two seasons is they, they were a little bit dull um, yeah. at times. Yeah. You know, we, we'd, had, yeah. we'd had the Dominion War, we'd had the Borg invasion, we'd had all that, and then suddenly we had um, negotiating trade negotiations with cargo ships. 
No, I, I couldn't agree more, especially given the nature of the fact this is a story I tell all the time. So, you know, these, these are all kind of crusty old yarns, but there was an episode early on when one of the crew members transports down. We were supposedly afraid of a transporter mm -hmm. and he transports back up. And in the first draft, I had a little in with the hair trailer. They would slip me the first drafts of the scripts. Uh, so I could kind of get a sense of how much I was going to be in the next episode, because I would still troll for work outside of the show if I wasn't going to be used much. And in the first draft, the crewman who transports backs up, up to the ship, it's like his ass is where his head should be. It's like, oh my God, oh my God, terrifying. By the time we get the finished script, you know, after it's gone through multiple passes, he transports back up to the ship and he's got like a little twig sticking out of his ear. All I have to do is cut it with a pair of fucking pruning shears. And I thought that was really representative of where the combination of the network and I don't know how much of it was Rick and Brandon, but the powers that be kind of took the edge off what should have been to me the signature of that show, which is it should have been fucking scary. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're the first goddamn ship in space. We don't trust the equipment. We don't trust the transporter. We've never done this before. To me, it should have been like they should have broken the mold of Star Trek, overlapping dialogue, arguments, confusion, anger, and we, we still triumph, you know, you still have like, you rise above it. All shows have to kind of show the heroes being heroic, but I think they really missed the boat at allowing it to be scary, you know? Yeah, I I mean, I've, I've always said, when I've spoken about Enterprise to, to other Star Trek fans, one of the things I've always said is that that sequence of stories in season four that uh -huh. begins, <laughs> I don't know, mentioned already, but begins with the assassination of Admiral Forrest. And it's mm. that this complex relationship that develops between the Vulcans uh, and um, Starfleet or Earth at the time. I thought that. A storyline like that in the first season would have kicked it off and set it up much better, I think, going forward. Because I, I never quite bought the distrust of the Vulcans in the first couple of seasons. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I, I sometimes kind of devolve into critiquing the show to probably, you know, to a too big an extent. I mean, there were things that worked, there were things that didn't work. I, I you know, it, it was so long ago for me, mm. I mean. 20 years ago and I I haven't watched it in a long long time so I draw on very old memories I don't know if I went back and watched it now whether I would appreciate it now or not I, I've seen bits and pieces fragments sometimes just channel surfing and sometimes it catches me and I watch a little bit and sometimes I, I gotta say I'm with you it's like this is dull this is boring and I and I, or or it's like I've seen this a thousand times and I and I and I pass it was hit or miss, you know. I, I, a lot of a lot of television can be hit or miss. Making twenty two or twenty six episodes a season. I mean, I think one of the things that streaming does, one of the things that cable does, is they have a pretty, um, you know, and and that you guys frankly do much better than we do. You have a smaller, shorter season, and each episode really packs a wallop, and it's serialized. So there's a sense of progression and growth old school American television, you know, like Bonanza, it's like, haven't I seen this episode of Bonanza about 18 times already? Well, yeah, because they make 30 a year and they've been on for 10 fucking years. Mm -hmm. How many stories can you tell? I think Star Trek suffered from that by the time, you know, we came along. It's like, I, I think, 
I, I, I went into the writer's room once, unlike Bob Picardo, who was like, you know, he'd wake up with stories to pitch. You know, I'm an opera singer. I, I was like, you know, just give me the script. Give me the script. I'll do it. Like, what am I, what am I doing? Yeah, what am I doing? But I, I did fry once. I went in with some friends because they were wanted. They were writers and they wanted to pitch. And I said, well, I'll, I'll walk you in. Well, we'll come up with some ideas. And we walked in and we started to pitch. And, and Brandon, who was great, he was nice enough to take the meeting. He pointed to this, you know, whiteboard, and and it said something like "crusty old moldies" or whatever the fuck it was. And it was basically all the ideas. And it's like everybody tries to pitch, and it seemed like there were hundreds of them. And you realize that after umpteen years of Star Trek, how hard it was to come up with a new idea. I mean, yeah. I was going to ask you about writing because I've heard you talk about your love of writing on, on, mm-hmm. other, on other podcasts, which are available uh, in various channels. Um, I mean, what, where, what was your relationship like with the writers? Because there was some real talent on there. You know, you had Brannon and you had Manny. Came on board well, Manny, came, Manny came late. I mean, in a way, that was sort of an instance where the ship had sailed. By the time Manny joined us in season three, um, our ratings had plummeted. The network itself, UPN, was hanging on by its fingernails. We were only given a third and a fourth season because they weren't quite ready to fold the entire network tent, and the network needed something. And no writers, producers, wanted to go pitch for UPN. Who wants to sell a show to a network that you don't think is gonna survive? So they desperately needed some content. So perversely, although we only lasted four seasons, in any other situation, we probably would have been canceled after two. Manny joined us, he loved Star Trek. He was a big fan of the original series. Uh, They had a very specific dictate from on high to juice up season three, to make it more dramatic. This was post 9-11, obviously. Personally, I found certain episodes th- that season to be distasteful. I thought they were they fed into a certain kind of a conservative triumphalism that I think is problematic about America. There were also some very good standalone episodes. And there's no doubt to me that Manny, I think, was uh, coming at it from a, a, from a perspective that uh, juiced us, brought a lot of freshness to it. Some of the best episodes we did that year, I thought, uh, similitude. I'm not sure he wrote that, but I think he played a significant role in helping to. That's, uh, that's, help. a, that's a tough episode to watch. That, yeah, and that's a, to my mind, that's the best episode we did. Uh, that's always the one I point to. I think you know it had all the things that make Star Trek effective. It dealt with a topical issue that was was um, controversial. It found a way to get every single character in the show invested emotionally in how things play out through the lens of the actions you know, surrounding this controversy. Should we do this? Should we not do this? Now that we've done this, what do we do next? Is this right? Is this wrong? Hugh the Borg, I think, is another classic episode that kind of deals with some of the similar, you know, not similar themes, but that pays off in a similar way. Yeah, you've got to have, these, yeah. it, topical is great, but you've got to make sure it plays through the lens of how the characters are, are genuinely, you know, gripped by the, by the incident. Um, and and Manny, Manny, the fourth season, you know, by then it was clear, at least it was clear to those of us who, you know, had our eyes wide open that we, this is it. We weren't going to go beyond this. I thought that gave Manny a lot of freedom to kind of, you know, write Valentine episodes. It's like, well, how come the Klingons don't look the same way? Da, 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 da. He, you know, he, yeah, he wrote, he wrote episodes that were sort of, you know, rooted in his deep affection for the original series. Mm. 
if the show had survived, I think you know there there would have been um, another turn. I don't know, you know, where we would have gone, but I there had been talk about uh, Jeff becoming a regular, um, mm -hmm. the Andorian. Um, there was talk about a Romulan war. Um, you know, I think it might have become become a little more um, a little darker again. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I would love season three and four. Can I give you a bit of a memory test? It, by all means. Okay. But yes, do, I am wearing pants. Okay. Do, do, cue, does, cue the music. Does, does the Association of Cartographers for Social Justice mean anything uh, to you? Sure, of course it does. Good old West Wing. Uh, yes, and, and the Peter's Projection Map, I think it's called. Yes, which, that's right, yeah. Is it basically uh, a version of the map that is designed to actually show the real sizes of the countries and it, it according to the folks behind this map kind of combats are um uh the the inherent racism that exists when you look at the regular map africa for instance is infinitely smaller than it really is mm -hmm. a map that shows africa in, in in true proportion to other countries to europe for instance would heighten our understanding of the importance of Africa. That's why we didn't do it that way. That's in to a certain extent what the Peter's projection map is arguing. I mean, I, I love the West Wing. And I did too. We've mentioned writers and I'm Sorkin. Out. Sorkin is just an, you know, a writing god, in my opinion. I mean, what, what was it like being on the show? I mean, you, you had a great part in that episode. I did not meet him, uh, so I, I couldn't speak to, you know, him particularly. Um, I was on a plane with him uh, uh, some months back. He got the VIP treatment, man. They, like, they drove up and, like, and then I hustled him onto the plane. It's like, ooh. Um, I lobbed peanuts at him from the back. It was like, fuck you, Aaron Sorkin. First class bastard. Um, you, he, he, there are a number of writers like this, and I really, I do appreciate this. David Kelly, Aaron Sorkin, there are a few others for whom do not change a syllable, which can be a challenge for uh, an actor, um, particularly if they do any kind of rewrites on the day or the day before. You mentioned uh, NYPD Blue. David Milch is uh, another one who, um, a terrific writer, but he would rewrite the entire script sometimes. And Jimmy Smits eventually quit the show because he was sick of being handed new pages that morning as if he could somehow like, you know, take these, you know, fairly elaborate monologues and just kind of, you know, rip them out of his ass. Um, Deadwood, another example of Aaron Sorkin, I know Aaron Sorkin, of David Milch practically killing his actors mm -hmm. um, you know, with these incredible monologues that he'd kind of, hand you and say, yeah, so camera rolls in about 15 minutes. It's like, I don't have a, I don't have that kind of memory. <laughs> James Woods, supposedly, just has to look at the script and he has a photographic memory. Really? So, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. I, one of, I mean, I, I liked James Woods as an actor. At one point, if James Woods was in it, I would watch it. I'm less enthusiastic. Yes, less enamored of him as a human um, being. Yes, no. yes. I, I, I know I've, I consulted James Woods before, and uh, unfortunately, nobody knows who the fuck I am, so it doesn't come back yeah, yeah. to my ass. Not to his face, though, because that'd be quite no, terrifying. No, I try not to. I'm far too. <laughs> I'm far too frail to 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 insult anybody to his face. Good God forbid. 
I'm frail and I'm slow, which is a horrible combination. It's like I'm too I'm too weak to fight and I'm too slow to run. So you know, a yeah. butter wouldn't yeah. melt in my mouth when I'm meeting you in person. But yeah, I mean, that, that, coming back to that and, and all that social justice stuff, and I I do want to talk to you about the Hollywood. Um, oh, the Hollywood Food Coalition. Food Coalition. Yeah. And yeah. That, I think that ties quite nicely in with the, the, the social justice stuff on that map. But um, you, you had a great part in that episode, and you spent most of it opposite Bradley Whitford and Alison Janey. All of it, yes. I only had two scenes, yes. Yes, and uh, both of them are dreamy. I mean, dreamy actors, wonderful actors, and they couldn't be sweeter in person. I really enjoyed getting to know both of them. You know, it's funny, if you're a guest star, and I've been a regular on shows, and, and I always, in those times when I've been a regular, I always try and remember what it's like to be a guest on a show. You don't know anybody, you know, it's, it can be overwhelming. Um, I, you always want to go out of your way to make a guest feel at home and welcomed, and I think that's really, really, really important. Um, they certainly made me feel that way, and nine times out of ten, that is what happens. I just did a show called Station 19, which is kind of a spin-off of Grey's Anatomy. And uh, it's three of the younger cast members, especially, couldn't have been sweeter. Just so lovely and welcoming and nice and makes a big difference if you're an itinerant actor bobbing around from set to set. Because you've been on The Mentalist as well. And just while we're talk talking about Trek, um, there's a lot of Star Trek actors being on The Mentalist. And, well, you know, there are a lot of Star Trek actors, so yes. And, and there's a lot of Star Trek references on The Mentalist. And then oh, Bruno, the Bruno, when he finished, uh, Bruno Heller, when he finished The Mentalist, he'd done Gotham, which is the Batman prequel. Uh -huh. And there was Star Trek references and Star Trek actors in that. So I mean, the question, I mean, has to be someone involved in those two shows, whether it's Bruno or someone else that's a Star Trek fan. Could be. I don't know. I didn't watch The Mentalist. I, I, uh, I, I only watched the episode I was in, so I don't know much about that show. And I haven't watched Gotham. So, uh, yeah. Got Gotham's uh, worth a watch. It's well worth a watch. The, the, the... I, I try and, I try and um, keep, a, keep a rein on the amount of television I watch, although during COVID I've watched far more, far more television than I'm used to, because I really do like to read. And uh, and it's, it can be very easy to kind of get all your reading time sucked away by TV. So I uh, probably most shows I'm I'm cognizant that they exist, but I'm not familiar with them terribly no. well. Well, JJ's going to hate me because I go on about it every week at the moment for all mankind on Apple TV. I did watch Shit's Creek. Oh, and great. Loved that. Which, uh, oh. I thought was charming as shit. And uh, I watched um, oh, Fleabag recently, which oh, right, I, yeah. uh, was fucking great. But I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm always years behind in terms of, and the same way with movies, it's like I still haven't seen the Oscar winners for like, you know, a decade probably. So I don't know. I don't even, I, why am I in this business is really, I wanted to be a writer. I, I actually went to college. Uh, I went to a small, well, I only applied to girls' schools. That was my way of, you know, figuring I've got to even the, I was like, you know, 18 years old and I couldn't even look at myself. I couldn't imagine a girl wanting to look at me. So I thought I've got, I, got, I need all the help I can get. I'm only going to apply to like, you wouldn't necessarily get these references. But in the States, it's like Vassar, Smith, Wesley, and Bennington. It was like, I, I care about the female to male ratio, first and foremost. 
A secondary concern was that they had good writing teachers and a tertiary concern was that they didn't have grades. So I ended up going to Bennington College, which was a small liberal arts school, and I got to study with some really amazing writers, including Bernard Malamud, who's one of, in my opinion, one of the greatest post-war writers that America produced. Um, but at the age of 19, studying with one of the greatest writers that America's produced is like, well, talk about limp dick syndrome. It was like, I'm gonna become an actor. So that kind of put the kibosh on my writing career. Always been a big reader, but um, that, that was the, you know, uh, inadvertently a mistake of mine to study with the greats at too young an age. So it's a bit like imposter syndrome sort of thing, you know, where you're like- it's totally, yeah. Yeah, if I'd been like 19 and I studied with Olivier and Olivier was like, to be an actor, you must, I'd have been like, no, fuck that. I'm like, I don't know. Uh, right. oh, no, no, no. <laughs> but, so, um, where did you learn to act then? Say what? Where, where did you learn to act? I started acting when I was a kid in uh, the fifth grade. We had moved from uh, Louisiana to Connecticut with a brief stop in between in Manhattan. I had a thick southern accent like this. And, uh, and needless to say, the northern children tried to beat that out of me. But I, I did not feel like I was a particularly popular child, but I was always a reader. So in the fifth grade, they kind of had a, a form of a mandatory audition for the uh, class play. Everybody had to read for parts because everybody was going to play something. And it was a Christmas carol. And I was the only one who could pick up the script and read with any kind of authority. It's like, at least I didn't stumble over the fucking words. So I got cast as Scrooge. And for this brief halcyon moment in my life, I was popular. Of course, it all ended as soon as the play was over. But that was the, that was the impetus. I turned to my parents and said, I want to be an actor. Even in the fifth grade, I thought, this is how I'm going to get laid eventually. And who knows, perhaps people will buy me drinks in pubs sometime down the road. Uh, my, my parents far, very, yeah. and it worked. My parents very graciously uh, sent me to uh, in Manhattan. I studied with a couple of um, terrific acting teachers, uh, Ed and Dorothy Bryce. You, you would not know, and uh, I just fell in love with it. And and so it was always between writing and acting, writing and acting. I didn't really think because I was like you know kind of like a bulbous nosed, pimply faced kid. I thought. It's probably not going to happen for me there. So I thought writing was more likely to be where. But you know, you know, there's always room for a little, a little character actor here and there. And and I, I did love it. I always loved it. So I, I pursued it pretty much professionally from the time I was 21. And you know, you scrape by. I was an acting teacher. I ran a theater company devoted to adapting fiction for the stage, which still exists. I was a peripatetic theater actor, and then I moved to LA in 1994 and devoted myself exclusively to film and TV. So that's pretty much. So um, you mentioned, you said about character, there's always a need for a character actor. Um, now, obviously I've not watched as many things as Gregor, so my knowledge of your good self is limited to Stargate, uh, the Orville, and obviously Star Trek. But um, you, you mentioned- You don't know my oeuvre. Oh no! Welcome to my I am the simpleton of the show, my dear. Um, oh, uh, <laughs> he's the intelligent one. I'm just the one that sits and looks pretty. Um, I see. So, I like see the, the you know, Doctor Flox for me um, is just the brilliant. You bring something to that which is what makes Enterprise watchable for me in the early seasons. 
uh, especially when you forward through all the scenes I'm not in. I get pretty much it. Pretty much. That's um, the way I did it too. I, 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 right, I've just got to stop before this goes too far because, in the interest of full disclosure, there's a Twitter account called Doctor Floxy's Fourth Wife, and it's JJ. I think it's JJ. So no, I, 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 I'm, I know her very well. Yes, our mutual JJ. friend. Yes, our mutual friend uh, Brooke Perez. Yes, I think. Brooke Perez. Yes. Oh, what a lovely, lovely person. Shout um, out to Brooke. I know. Yes. I, I, we'll uh, we'll put a, we'll we'll put a tagline in the uh, in the show notes so that if you want to follow. Brooke me, only can... sees my good side. She has no idea about what a dark and twisted character I really am. Actually, see that segue actually brings us nicely onto the fact that you know you mentioned that you're getting paid for this earlier on. Um, well, I don't think we should because we're kind of like sloppy fourth as far as your podcast is because. Uh, Prior to this, you've been on I Quit Star Trek Pod, I believe. I'm a slut. Uh, is what I'm, I'm yeah, a slut. Yeah, that's your podcast slut. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I didn't want to say it, but uh, there you go. From this US Star Trek actor. On the other hand, I don't get any money. You know, the reason I, well, one, I'm just, you know, why, why the fuck not? Why the fuck wouldn't I? I mean, you guys bought me a house as far as I'm concerned. I mean, until I had Star Trek, I was making a nice living. I was doing okay, but you know, that radically changed my life and to be able to travel the world and, you know, be able to crash into people's conversations with the expectation that not only will they allow me to do it, but they will buy me a drink. I mean, what a wonderful gift. So absolutely, I'll always, I'll always do podcasts. Um, but it also gives me an opportunity to kind of talk a bit about what I, what I do above and beyond acting, which is uh, the work I do with the Hollywood Food Coalition and the I don't want to call it social activism because although I'm very political, I am not a politician and I'm not, uh, the organization I work for is not itself political. We work to uh, address issues of food insecurity mm -hmm. and we do it in a lot of different ways. One, we feed everybody who wants a hot, good five course meal, knocks on our door every night, all comers, no questions asked, no barriers to entrance, no religious test. Uh, we try and make sure that those people who get a good meal are also given access to whatever we can provide by way of emergency services. Tents, sleeping bags, bus passes, laundry vouchers, clothing, shoes, uh, advice. We try and connect them to other social service organizations. And in addition, we also, see how I segued right into this? I wasn't even going to let you guys kind of, I was just going to like grab it. I just grabbed it. And the other thing we do is we started, we rescue a lot of food. So we opened a second facility and all the food we rescue from all over the city of Los Angeles lands there and we share it with other not-for-profits. And the premise is that a lot of great not-for-profits do really, really cool things, working with folks who have drug and alcohol issues, working with street kids, working with single mothers who have escaped from abusive situations. What they don't always have is really good, robust food programs. And we kind of say, you know what, if you're going to get up in the morning and you're going to go to class, or you're going to try and figure out how to kind of get your life back, you kind of have to make sure that those people get a good meal, at least one, at least one every day, if not two or three, you know, because we've all been there. When you're hungry, how well do you concentrate, you know, how, how, how much energy do you bring to the table? You got to start from a foundation. So we kind of use food in essence as a medium through which we can help support social services. And in that sense, I consider us a social justice organization, but it is obviously not specifically political in nature. 
Um, that's the Hollywood Food Coalition. I will say no more about it, but it's a huge part of my life. I'm the president of the board. My wife is in charge of many aspects of food rescue. We're, we're in essence serving around 650,000 meals a year, both in our own home kitchen and, and more broadly by providing food to these other organizations. Um, anyway, big part of my life, big part of what I do. To be honest with you, you can yeah, talk I'm, about it as much as you want, actually, to be honest, because um, one, it, in a sort of a Star trek connection way, um, Gene Roddenberry's vision of Star Trek was what humanity could be, what it could achieve if it were, you know, if it got rid of the shackles of everything that holds us down right now, uh, and being able to help everybody, uh, like the way the uh, Hollywood Fooled Coalition does in that way, is um, is a great, you know, is a great example of the kind of things that we all need to do. And if we all did these things, we wouldn't have the problems that. Uh, and you, and know. you know what I find what find interesting, and and it it lifts me, and it gives me hope in in dark times. And this we've been through a very very dark time in American history. I think the last four years might be one of the darkest periods in American history. But one of the things that I come away with is that almost everybody I meet is doing something. Even people who I might have strong political disagreements with they are in their own way trying to give back to their community. Now, sometimes I think those efforts become so darkly politicized, they become pernicious, that's my own opinion. But most people are looking for ways to help and get involved in their community. Most people are trying. Sometimes what I think we, we don't do quite well enough yet is we don't encourage and, and help foster in people that little volunteeristic flame and help it grow, you know? Most of us want to do something. I think a lot of what we need in this world is to kind of find that impetus that people have to help and nurture it and encourage it and figure out ways to allow it to, to, to bloom, you know? Do you want to teach kids to read? Do you want to volunteer in the, in the prison system? Do you want to work on, on specifically social justice issues or, or, or on, you know, in my instance, for whatever reason, I'm particularly drawn towards, towards issues revolving around poverty. Whatever it is that animates you, there are ways to get involved in your community. There are any number of groups that exist that are fighting the fight that you want to participate in fighting. You know, and I, I just kind of like in a macro way, above and beyond what I do, I always like to just kind of say, do some Googling, do some phone calling, find out who's doing shit that interests you and pitch in. And you will find a whole community of really cool people that will become your, you know, your life buddies because you're all invested in the same, in the same passion. Many, many people do that. And my wife is always saying, you make it sound like, you know, you've, you've found fire. It's like, oh, fire, everybody should do this. It, 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 for me, has been an ever more important part of my life, the older I've gotten, figuring out how to give back. And it, it animates me. So I tend to talk about it a lot. There's, um, there's a public health expert here in Scotland, uh, Professor Harry Burns. And he's done a lot of studies. He's you know, highly, he's, he's professor, so he's highly regarded to begin with. But uh, he's, he's had a lot of published papers and he's done a lot of studies on um, hu humans' needs. Mm -hmm. And we live in a system now, whether it's a socialist system or a communist system or a capitalist system, it's, it's actually inversed whereby we use um, food, shelter and warmth uh, as the motivator. We, we, we have that at the top of the triangle so to speak. 
And we expect everyone at the bottom of the triangle to, to climb the triangle to, to this pinnacle of achieving self-sufficiency in terms of food, shelter. Yeah, well, there's Maslow, Maslow's needs, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of the hierarchy that basically says you've got to start by making sure that people have, you know, something to eat, a place to sleep. Yes. You know, you're never going to get people emotionally healthy or intellectually healthy until you make sure that their physical emergency needs are taken care of. We, we really believe that as you begin to climb that ladder, though, that's when for somebody who may be taking drugs, you try and get them into a treatment program. You try and find, you know, job training for them. You try and make sure that they can belong to a community where they feel like they're part of something. Those are the deepest human needs we have. The need for connection, mental health, and spiritual well-being. You don't get it if you're not fucking eating. Yeah. You, know? I, you don't get it if you're living on the street. You also make poor decisions. And this, yeah. is, this, is, this is Harry Burns. This is what Harry <laughs> Burns has done a lot of study on. If you, you know, if you if you take all that away, people make poor decisions. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's 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 a it's a major step in getting you know what you're doing by making sure people are getting the right well, no, nutrition. No, and no, the, kid, no kid pops out of the womb, you know, like with a with a stamp on his head saying "doomed to fail, doomed to starve, doomed to fuck up." It's the, it's the world we live in, you know, unfortunately, starts kicking kids in the teeth for in a lot of ways from a very, very early age. Mm. I have a friend of mine who teaches in the L.A. public school system. There are 40 kids in his class and they range across all socioeconomic backgrounds. And they have all sorts of different kinds of behavioral and learning issues, family problems. There's no way in God's green earth the public school system, as it is currently constituted, can grapple with these kids needs. We graduate a lot of kids from our public school system here in America that are not capable of fitting into our workforce. They certainly are not able to make more than minimum wage. And in cities in America, minimum wage ain't going to get you fucking bupkis. It ain't going to buy you an apartment. So surprise, surprise, they end up in the prisons or on the streets. That's, that's not the kid. That's us. That's us not valuing, <clears throat> you know, human life. Um, so anyway, don't get me started because I get pretty animated about this shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, it's, that's that's a green flag for Gregor there. He's he's gonna throw. He's gonna throw well, you guys, I mean, that. you know, God God bless Scotland. I mean, you know, uh, and, and I I know that you know there are many many of y'all that would just as soon pull away from Great Britain, and I totally get it because you know you guys have fought the good fight in terms of honoring the principles of progressivism in 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 the teeth of a retrenchment, and I'm I'm you know applaud that. I applaud a lot of what you know northern europe specifically in the scandinavian countries have achieved you know to a certain extent that's that's a little a little more feasible because it is not quite as um racism is not quite as problematic we we are such a a crazy quilt of ethnicities that it is very easy for people on the right who do not want to see their uh their purse shrink by a single coin it's very easy for them to incite middle class and lower middle class people to blame poorer people for their problems mm -hmm. uh, it's not there's something in the news you know months and months ago i was just like <laughs> broke my heart this poor you know toothless white guy in florida was basically refusing free dental care because it was coming from a program that was also providing free dental care for black people and it was basically saying you know I don't want a goddamn welfare. I'm not taking no welfare. Those those people don't deserve it. It's like you would rather live your life toothless 
than than see the guy next to you that you don't like because he's a different color than you get the same service that you would get. I, I mean, we have this argument when it comes to universal basic income, which they have in Finland. <clears throat> yeah. And it works. Look, yeah. there, there isn't a metric that they can measure that shows that it fails. No. And, uh, and every other um, yeah. rightish leaning country, um, the minute it's spoken about, it's, oh, well, why will people go to their work in the morning? Well, we have the evidence that it works. There's more, innov- there's more innovation, there's more entrepreneurialism and far less inequality in Finland than there is in the UK or the US. Yeah, no, I, I, I know it, it's, but you know, the people who for, for well, there, I, I think there are a bajillion reasons rooted in what's, you know, unfortunately corrosive in the human spirit for all that's wonderful in the human spirit. There is still that fuck flea fight primeval primitive goddamn brain that's basically, you know, protect your fucking turf, protect your tribe. There's a wonderful book called The Righteous Mind by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. And in it, he essentially argues that the real value lie that makes it difficult for people on the right and people on the left to come together is that the anthropological history of the world suggests that people, when they form tribal associations, think in two ways. Some people think that the tribe has to close ranks and anybody outside the tribe is a threat to the tribe. Other tribes thought the only way our tribe can survive is to expand and bring new people in. And that this was the fundamental dividing line still in the way we think about the world. And I think there's, that makes a lot of sense when you talk to people about how they, how they view uh, politics. And, and um, that, that particular sort of example of the tribal system, as you mentioned, was, um, I think, was played out really well and I think was a very good display in The Walking Dead. Because they have that sort of that tribal when they form their little groups, they form them those little tribal, um, you know, social groups, and that and exactly that happens. You know, there's the, the groups that sort of you know stick together and keep small, and then there's the um, there's Rick's yeah. group, which sort of like welcomes people in and grows yeah. and stuff like that. So that's a good and, example. And you look at you look at human history, and it's really difficult to not kind of want to turn around to folks who who are, who are more who are more you know close the circle, and say the the. The reason we survived and to the extent we have flourished, flourished is because y- you guys lost. You know, nation states evolved because small tribes got together and said, we should get bigger. You know, the only way we're going to be able to defend ourselves is to grow more food and build bigger communities and engage in a more vociferous and vigorous uh, collaborative effort to provide. <laughs> it's like, as you said about Finland, it, it has demonstrably worked better than your way of visiting, you know, life as a constant Manichaean fight for survival against everybody fucking else. In the, the I, mean, big... I don't think. Sorry, JJ, you go. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the biggest problems with um, humanity working in a way that that would be beneficial for everybody is perspective. Um. For example, if I was to draw a a number on the table in front of me, say uh, I would draw a six. I but if you were if, if you if you were you know sat at the other side of me, you would see a nine. So that is the that is the biggest problem. And like you say, different countries doing different things, different ways, and different people doing different things in different ways. We're going to think you're wrong, but you could think I'm wrong. And as long as we have that 
we base our decisions on on our own perspective. I think you know we'll always have that sort of those issues. And there's another another book I quite like. It was very interesting. It was called The Big Sort. I think it was his title. And he basically argued this is in relationship to America, but I think this is that there is some truth to this uh, on a global perspective. That in periods of time when um, progressivism has advanced, it's usually come about because there has been a, a, a pronounced intermingling of populations. And he argues that in a way, if we could treat America as if it was a blanket and we can toss everybody up in the air every but you know, like seven years, so that they all land in a different place and they would have to reorient themselves in ways that could, you know, be eye-opening. I, I do sometimes kind of feel like, you know, one of the things that happened after, and, you know, this is arguable, but particularly in, in 2008, is that with everybody kind of, you know, the housing market underwater, it kind of put the kibosh on a lot of people moving, you know, that's begun to shift and change, but some of the, some of the, the you know, stuck in the mudness that happened in the American economy, I think helped to perpetuate some of the, the, um, more nativist uh, impulses too. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's some of the the deeper underlying reasons for what's happened in America in the last five or six years. Um, as an outsider who's relatively interested in, in politics, there's a couple of things that I've seen over the last 40 years. The way American elections are conducted, the TV adverts, the finance, and I think that was probably a bigger contributing factor to, to what's happened the last five or six years. I, I mean, I, I, I would watch some stuff and go, how is that an issue? That's, that's not even a political issue. That is, that's just tribalism. I mean, the, the biggest thing that happened to me, and, and Lyndon Johnson said this in 1964 with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, is we always had this very peculiar, I mean, race in America, it's such a driver of everything. There was always this really strange marriage between the progressive left in the Democratic Party and the and the conservative right in the Democratic Party. And there was a devil's compact under Roosevelt. Roosevelt basically said, we're going to rebuild the South. We're going to build dams. We're going to electrify you. We're going to bring you back up into, because it was an incredibly backward part of our country. Uh, the poverty rate was through the roof. We're going to bring you into the country and we ask for you to support these, you know, extremely expensive initiatives. And the Southern Republicans, Southern Democrats at the time said, sure, but in return, leave us the fuck alone when it comes to our racial codes. We are going to continue to lynch black people. We're going to continue to imprison black people. And the Democratic left said, okay. And in 1964, black people said, enough is fucking enough. We had the civil rights marches and the civil rights act passed and lyndon johnson essentially said this is going to break the democratic party and the republican party is going to come in and they're going to get in bed with the racists and now they're going to be in power for the next two generations and that's what happened you know from 1968 until today the republican party has essentially had much more political dominance because they've been able to form this kind of devil's alliance between the racist right, the fundamentalist religious right, which, you know, and frankly, there's a lot of racism in the fundamentalist movement, um, and the corporatist uh, part of the Republican Party. It's become an ex extremely well financed by the corporatists. As you say, they have made it di very difficult to uh, engage. We don't have public financing elections. We have dark money flooding in, and that's, that's a choice. But the animating impulse is race. 
I mean, I, I think there's been an opportunity missed, and I, fun, I mean, I'm not. I'll just state my political views here. I am neither left nor right. I do not believe in a monetary system. I go way beyond that. And before anybody clearly, you're not you are not paying me. I understand that. You <laughs> I go way you know. I know. You're going to send me what are you what are you going to send me? You're going to send me something along the barter system. You're going to send me chocolates, coconuts. What are you going to send me? Well, the Jacques Fresco, the Venus Project, Jacques Fresco is probably the closest to where I think we need to do. I don't think we're going to realistically we're not going to do away. We can't put the genie back in the bottle, but it needs some sort of major adjustment. Otherwise, we're not going to be here in a hundred years' time. Simple as that. But both the Democrats and here in the UK with the Labour Party, there has been growing unrest, there has been a growing movement to the left, a much more fundamental movement to the left in those parties. But the people that run those parties who had the chance to get the 30 to 40% of people who don't vote, to get them out the door and making the vote, missed it because they, the Labour Party contrived against their own leader, Jeremy Corbyn, and the Democrats twice made it their mission to make sure Bernie Saunders never got anywhere near the, the nomination. Uh, I'm going to push back at that. I, and I won't speak to English politics because I'm certainly not as knowledgeable as you are. But in America, the problem is, is that you cannot have a governing coalition if you don't find a way to meld the center right and the left. Uh, what I think Joe Biden has done is he's taken a lot of left-wing policies and he's actually f figured out a way to use moderate rhetoric to bring a coalition together. And that's not something that Bernie could have achieved. Bernie lost because a lot of Democrats didn't want Bernie. And that wasn't because that they necessarily were, you know, intentionally pushed off the Bernie dime by evil forces. It's because they didn't believe that Bernie could win and they didn't believe that Bernie could effectively govern. I mean, do you think, do you think Biden would have won if it hadn't been for COVID? Um, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those counterfactuals, you know, it, you don't know what might have come up as, as you know, the one thing you can say about Trump is Trump had a nose for dog shit. So if it hadn't been COVID, you don't know what dog shit Trump might have stepped in. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I think it would have been fucking close. But that's, that's, the one thing that that you know, and you rent, you mentioned Rupert Murdoch at the top of it. If there's another thing that has changed in the last fifty or so years, it's the fragmentation of media and the nature of the growth of these propagandistic networks that are essentially uncontrolled. Um, and I, I'm not a I'm not a I'm a free speech guy, but at the same time, in America, once the FCC had something called the Fairness Doctrine, and it really wouldn't allow people who, in essence, were given access to the public airwaves to say whatever the fuck they wanted. We now have propaganda channels where people are essentially, you know, uh, I mean, a good portion of the American population believes this past election was fraudulent. And in large part, that's because propaganda channels in America, Rupert Murdoch, obviously, you know, leading the charge, have, have, have parroted those claims. I don't know, I mean, if Goebbels has the power to blah, 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 in perpetuity? The fuck do you do? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. This is why I hide from, I very rarely watch news. I mean, I used to. I used to watch it religiously. You can't hide because we're going to be underwater. You know, you will be drowning and you'll be saying, oh, I didn't see that coming. I mean, that's 
I'm extremely political, but I, I have to say, I, I do respond to people who kind of feel like they can avert their eyes. It's like, it's coming for all of us. I mean, uh, don't get me, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I keep a sort of a weather eye on the horizon, but I, uh, when it comes to sort of like, it's just, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just recently is that I've, I've done this because of everything that's going on. And I suppose you're right in a way, it is kind of burying my head in the sand. Um, but I already know what's coming. I mean, you can, anybody can see where we're going if we continue down the path that we currently are on. Um, I don't, forgive me, and I don't know you, so I don't mean to point that at you, but I, I, I do think that, you know, looking, for instance, just in America, the thing that always stuns me is that, you know, a good 30 to 40% of the American population does not vote. I mean, if everybody who had a sense of, you know, Jesus, fuck, this is unacceptable, actually went to the polls, I don't think we would have this, you know, this just the same level of dysfunction. But people, there was reading a story the other day in the paper that I thought was really telling this young woman who, uh, clearly very smart, um, had grown up in relative poverty, was living in Michigan, was struggling, was receiving some benefits. And she said, oh, finally, the government is doing something for me. I hate the government. I think the government sucks. I can't believe I'm finally getting something. Oh, and how do you how do you, and they started asking a lot of questions. Well, why do you think that's happened? And does this change your relationship to the government, governance generally? She said, well, I'm still not going to vote. I don't believe in that. It's like, well, you know, the most fundamental disconnect you make, that people make, is that somehow the circumstances of their lives are, are not alterable by participating in the governance of their own country as if they are merely innocent bystanders in the process. I'm not referring to you, but I do think it's no, no, one of the biggest problems we face. I mean, to be, to be, to be and, fair. And generally speaking in the world, I mean, people, it, it, government is us. What's happening in the world is happening because of us. We are. It's not like this, this group of people are foisting tragedies upon us. We are participating. In every way it is possible, we are all part of this collective response to the tragedies of our time. I mean, uh, it's a, it's a conscious, it's a conscious I've, thing with me. I've... I'm very self-aware of it, because uh, I know a lot of people, like they're like, oh, I don't watch the news, but why? They can't give a reason, or they just, they, they are sort of, they completely disconnect themselves from it. Mm. Um, I choose not to watch um, the news actively, but what I do is when that information does filter down, by the time it filters down to me, most of the crap, the fake news, the propaganda, and all the other hype that usually comes out instantly when a big news story hits or something. I mean, like, for example, uh, as this um, is being recorded at the time of recording, there's currently a, a thing on in, in Europe about uh, the Oxford vaccine supposedly causing... Uh, blood clots. Um, now, there's a lot, I, I don't believe that for a second, because at the end of the day, there are medical professionals out there that have said, no, the, the ratio of risk from the vaccine is actually lower than the ratio of risk for somebody in their general day-to-day -day life. I think he, uh, the guy that I listened to said that one in 1,000 people with in their regular life would develop a blood clot, whereas one in 40,000 people that take the vaccine could potentially, 
there's the word could. Yeah, so I, I, I take I take your point that that you know to a certain extent you're trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, basically. That, yeah. You know, there's a lot of chaff, so you wait until the wheat arrives. I get that. I would only push back to this extent. I would say that the extent to which the world is a complicated place and that some more is demanded of all of us in terms of understanding what is going on that creates the conditions under which we live. I do think that people, not all people, but many people have abdicated their responsibility for knowing, for reading and for understanding why we are in certain pickles. And, and, and that to me is one of the big, the big concerns. And, I, and you get it. I mean, people have their lives, they have jobs, they've got their day-to-day -day obligations their family needs. It's, there's so much on everybody's plate. It is a lot to ask people to have a, a heightened awareness of why things are the way they are. And yet in the end, there is no substitute for knowledge. There is no substitute for having a working understanding of how the systems function and, and where we are being um, betrayed by the people who are nominally leading us. And I, and I do miss that. I miss that in, in and it, and, it self, and it perpetuates, you know, I mean, in America, at least, I, I believe down to my bones that the, the, um, it, the project of the Republican Party is to keep Americans dumb. Keep them dumb. We do not invest in our education system. We are very anti-intellectual. There are people with a lot of money who, who get the value of that. A, a sheep-like populace that does not you know, pay attention to the issues, can be convinced that the most important thing is the black people are coming for you. They're easily gulled and people are easily gulled when they don't read, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at any political campaign, um, the parameters between the parties that are likely to win it, the gap between them is becoming much smaller. As, as the number of people who vote becomes smaller because they're chasing this smaller 2% swing, 1% swing that's necessary to win the election. And because of that, we're not getting proper debate. Well, that's not true here in America. It's the opposite. We are so... I mean, once upon a time in American history, if you went back to like 1956, Eisenhower would have been a progressive centrist. You know, there was a broad unanimity of understanding about what the mission of governments was. Liberality in the sense of, of commonly held values was normative. And generally speaking, if you asked a guy on the street, and there have been many studies that show this, back then, uh, what are the differences between the Democratic and the Republican Party? Most people go, I'm not sure, I don't, I don't know if there are any. Nowadays in America, the gulf is so fucking wide that you, you, we won't even talk to each other. They, they, there's been this amazing growth. Back, back in the day, 40, 50 years ago, if you ask somebody, how would you feel if your daughter or your son married somebody the opposite political party, they'd go, I don't care. Nowadays, they would rather see you marry a fucking Russian spy than marry a Republican or a Democrat. You know? I know that personally uh, people who have families who have literally split because one side of that family was, uh, you know, Trump supporter and the other was a uh, supporter of Biden. Um, me personally, whatever you, uh, any of our listeners want, you know, whatever your political preference is, wherever you are in the world, that's your right. Well, there aren't any conservatives <laughs> listening now, I can tell you that. <laughs> I've driven away. Whatever fraction of your audience might have been of the right have long abandoned you. 
just yeah, like they're, they're, they're spray painting the walls of your house actually <laughs> John. That's what they're doing. so just just like the fact that um i am a fan of discovery to an extent uh whereas gregor basically um after season two wasn't it um he he bailed out he always that. bailed at the end of the second season in this case, I was fully justified, though, because it is rubbish. <laughs> but before before he goes on to a, a, a Discovery rant, which I try and avoid, uh, because once he gets going... Um, he, but we will talk about that in a little bit, because it is extremely fun to listen to and watch. I have a have question Have you ever had a Discovery you. guest? Will you ever have a Discovery guest? Uh, probably, if they've ever listened to his rants, probably not. Um, we, You know, to be honest with you, we would love, uh, and if anybody is listening that happens to have the ear of any Discovery actor, we would lo- we would quite happily have you on, because I would love for them to sort of put, you know, Gregor's nose out a joint on on a, a few things. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you know? How do you know they're not going to come on and say, and say, I used to get the script every week and go, what, they want me to read this fucking shit? Probably because they want to be in season three, four, five. <laughs> I, I was, wait, I was wait, in the 20 tent years. Tent. Wait 20 years, Gregor. We become remarkably candid after 20 years of <laughs> But on the, on the subject of candid um, and, and whatnot, I want to, uh, there's something I've always wanted to, um, to ask yourself regarding um, your input to the character of Dr. Phlox, um, because it's it's well known. I mean, I one of the things I loved about the characters in the early uh, early early season season one was the optimism and the the curiosity that the Dr. Phlox's character had for what humanity was getting up to and stuff like that. Uh, one scene particularly uh, comes to mind where. Yeah, you believe you're talking about uh, an ensign, two ensigns, or an ensign and a lieutenant, or something like that, that are dating, and you're talking about how they may, they're getting ready to mate, and you're like, oh, I wonder if they'll let me watch, and I'm like, oh, I remember that, yes, <laughs> yeah, you remember that one, um, yes, and I just love the idea of, of of that curiosity and that enthusiasm. Did any of that um, come from you, or was that written in, or did you have a heavy input into Doctor Fox's character? Um, you know, I mean, I. There's, it's never a clean line. There's always a synthesis. You know, the actor mm-hmm. brings his or her own particular sensibility to the table and his own particular mannerisms and vocal patterns, and 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 it works on the writers. And the writers begin to kind of get a sense of of how you play things and what your strengths are, and they begin to write towards them. But the character was conceived as somebody who was buoyant and optimistic right out of the gate. So I don't take any credit for that. I think where you begin to elbow things out is in the behavioral patterns. And they're little things, you know? Like I thought, for instance, to me, it is like if Flox could sit at the table and eat all day, different shit, he would do it. So any any opportunity I had to kind of like, you know, like eat stuff, I would eat stuff. And I thought that was, you know, there was a scene in which I meet my wife and I, I smelled her. I thought, I think there was a very tactile. But you know, writers are funny because then they will throw stuff in and it, and and you feel like, what? It's really hard to, at one point, and I, this, I don't think anybody ever remembers this, it was referenced that Dr. Flox doesn't like to be touched. And it's like, you, they're like a gajillion fucking denobulans, man. I mean, like, I got like 18 th- fucking partners, don't like to be touched. I mean, to me, it's like, I would think it would be the opposite, that we were like the handsiest species <laughs> in the galaxy. So, 
when when I was cast, I thought, well, I've never, you know, there were no Denobulans in the history of Star Trek. They didn't give you any kind of history. There's nothing to go on. I, I saw you make shit up. So I kind of had this old backstory for myself that I was kind of like from a monastic order, that there are only like nine Denobulans left. And that's why. And then to find out that we were, in fact, the most overpopulated planet, you know, that we lived cheek to jowl. It's like Over, overpopulated because of that, a bunch of Randy. <laughs> well, yeah, but a bunch of Randy buggers who don't like to be touched. It's like, what? How does that work? But on the subject, work? on the subject of um, sexual uh, references, innuendos, and stuff. I like was that. the first bisexual Star Trek character. I tell this to people all the time. I had three. Oh, we'll get we'll get onto that in a little bit. But one of the things, whose idea was it for the decon scenes in Enterprise? I mean, I? Honest... Was, can, I, can I express my thanks to them personally for those two oh, I see, I understand. Well, because that, there was something we, for everybody we were, we were in those going, We were going for a Gregor Cameron sensibility. It's like, <laughs> what would Gregor Cameron like to watch? Something with a lot of full frontal nudity, probably. I mean, there was uh, like they were way too. I mean, not not that I'm complaining, but they were way too. It's also long like enough. I'm sorry, but you know, don't you think he got? I mean, I'm sorry, but we probably have men in women's rooms. I mean, it's like you know, you don't think he got two decon rooms? Honestly, <laughs> but and then every every now and again, Doctor Flox would yeah, exactly. His head through. Coming, coming oh, yeah, back yeah. to what? Coming back to watching mating rituals. You were always there at the window. I wonder. <laughs> I like to watch. No, I know he was a perv. He was the perviest character, and I, I confess that I did I did try and elbow that out. I did everything that was, I pitched something, to, I didn't pitch it to the writers, but this was always a dream of mine, that they would pick up like a stranded ship, and it was a Denobulan ship, and all the Denobulans came on board, and they were just like, all they did was like, they made messes, they ate the fucking, you know, they ate all the food, they fucked in the hallways, it was like, ah, because we had no boundaries, it's like, and they all looked like me. That was the other thing I pitched. It's like, what if every Denobulan looked exactly like me and I got to play them all? They didn't buy that. Now, all my great ideas. One final one. Picard got to sing fucking opera. Uh, one final thing from me and then I'll, I'll push back over to Greg because I know Greg has got a few questions to ask as well. Um, one of my favorite episodes within, or uh, two of my favorite episodes throughout uh, science fiction um, do involve your good self and I'm not blowing smoke, but they do. Yes, you are, but that's um, right. You can blow smoke. Hey, <laughs> I'll take that. That's, uh, that's your payment. Blow smoke up my ass. I will. I will. You know, I'll, I'll be a kiss ass as much as you know, I don't mind. Uh -huh. um, I'll let the... you watch me through the contaminate the decon room door. So the, the 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 one I like particularly is the um, the mirror universe episode. Uh, I can't remember the name of the episode off the top. Of In a mirror head. darkly. In a mirror darkly. Doctor Flox, mirror Doctor Flox is an evil. Bastard. He is. He's, he's Doctor 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 Mengele. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you do play. You do play sinister and evil really well. And that brings me up to my second favorite one, which was the Orville appearance that you made with uh, <laughs> with Robert Picardo. Yeah. I love that pure and simply because here we are. We've got Robert Picardo, great Star Trek cameo. Love it. Then we get into this. We get to the house and the next door neighbor or whatever, it, whatever it was you uh, you played in this, um, and you appeared. And I, honestly, when you appeared, I was like, John Billy's like Doctor Flox. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I had to fucking, fucking audition for that. 
it wasn't like they had this great idea. It's like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had both of the Star Trek doctors? Yeah. No, I had a fucking audition. It's like, I'm you glad you. Because the thing I loved about that episode was, okay, something's going off here, something's happening, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what I didn't see coming, maybe I didn't watch the episode properly or whether this was really, you know, because I am that much of a simpleton. But when it turned out that I totally you see you spending your entire life always being totally like surprised by every every like reversal of fortune in a television show. Oh, I didn't see that coming. It's like, I didn't see that coming. I'm easily amused, let's put it that way. <laughs> credulous is the word I think you're looking for. You're a credulous soul. Good on you. Um, yes, um, but yeah, I just, I thought that was really well done because it was like, okay, 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 and then, oh, he's the bad guy in this story, wow, and it just goes back to that, you you do have this this knack for playing really sinister. I've, I've, been, uh, I've been a serial killer, I've been a child rapist, I've been, I've, no, I'm, I'm, actually, you, you kind of alluded to this at one point, what was fun about Dr. Flox was it, it was actually kind of wonderful to play somebody who was probably much closer to my temperament. I mean, I'm obviously um, not a soft-spoken person, uh, and I don't I don't shut up. But I am a, a fairly um, uh, animated and buoyant person, and I do believe, in spite of my my political, you know, belligerence sometimes, that you 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 fight to achieve virtue in this world. I thought Dr. Flox had a lot of the values uh, deep in his persona and, and they animated him in, in a way that, you know, frankly, in my career, I haven't had a chance to play with much. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, think, I think Flox, a lot of the time when they were encountering new species or different circumstances, um, the, the crew may express some kind of prejudice or prejudging a race. And it was always Flox that would try and encourage them to look at look at it from the other the other viewpoint uh, and be accepting of. Yeah, there was one cultures. episode when they kind of went against that when when uh, which I was not my favorite episode. And I can get it. I mean, they they wanted to kind of push back against Flox's incredible sense of equanimity, and you do want that kind of tension. But when they suggested that our culture had had a in essence an ongoing race war with another culture, and that I wasn't prepared to, uh, I was going to let the guy die because I was so repulsed by yeah. his their essence. I, I thought that was maybe too, too, you know, too out of character for Flocks and, and too out of character for the Denobulans. But, you know, I mean, I guess oh. that was the point they were making, but. I, I watched that, that one. I did watch that one a couple of weeks ago, actually, the one where Archer orders Flocks to, to do the operation. I did think it was actually quite out of character. I did too. I, I did too. And, 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 you know, different, if you're number one on the call sheet, you have a lot more clout when it comes to knocking on the producer's door and saying, hey, I, I, I really am not comfortable with this. I think this is taking my character in the wrong direction. If you're number seven on the call sheet and you're the, you know, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say I was the least important character by any means, but I, I would say that I, I certainly was not, you know, accorded a tremendous amount of screen time. I, I wasn't inclined to, you know, go, hey, hey, it wasn't my, you know, that, that isn't really how I function in this business. So you just try and make it work as best you can. But that was the episode that I had that the hardest time stomaching. Mm -hmm. Even Dear Doctor, where I feel like I didn't agree with Flox's decision. And I, I thought that was, um, you know, 
to my mind, a, um, um, a, a, a problematic. Which one was dear doctor? Yeah, dear doctor, was he land? They they land on a planet, and and they're essentially a kind of a. a, a a species that has had had a considerably more primitive level of development. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they are yeah. they are treated in essence as as pet house slaves by the master species. Mm. The master species is dying, mm. and I come up with a cure, and I say I think it's wrong to give it to him, because you know if if this species is dying, it's going to allow the other species to develop in a way that they otherwise would not. That was kind of to me like. Not sure I can get behind that, but you know. But at least I thought you know, it, 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 I could I could see the argument kinda, um, and 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 I felt like it kind of more or less fit into Flox's understanding of how the universe works. Well, I, th I think I think in defense of the writers here, um, although it was pre Prime Directive, if there had been a Prime Directive, it, it was the episode in which the Prime Directive was first mentioned. Yeah. That at the very end of it, Scott says, "Now, nah, which I was way too on the nose." Now, Scott's father was the writer. He said, "Maybe if there was something like a directive, a, a prime directive." <laughs> <laughs> I felt Scott is like, "Yeah, you played that motherfucker. Good luck." Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, the, the only other thing I was just going to ask about writing was there ever a when you were, I'm presuming this mostly Enterprise because that's, I'm guessing that you were in more episodes of Enterprise than any other show. Any other show, yeah, 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 absolutely. Was there ever a writer where you got the script and you, you looked forward to it because it was a specific writer or did it not matter? Um, no, not so much. I mean, no, not so much. I, I, you know, I think when Manny came on, I, I you know, I, I, did tend to really feel like Manny was was very in in sync mm. with what the show what made the show work and what made the show not. Um, but no, I wasn't I wasn't uh, I didn't really have quite my. I mean, for one thing, it, from season to season, people came. And John Scheiben, who I thought I quite liked his scripts in the first uh, first and second season. He wasn't writing a ton of them, but whenever we got one, I thought it was very interesting, and and he didn't last. Um, Chris Black was a good friend of mine. I, I liked his scripts. He didn't last. People come and go for various reasons, you know. There's staff writers, and and you never know what was on in the staff room, whether or not it's a function of personalities or somebody feels like they might be able to get more power and more responsibility somewhere else. They just get a better offer. You don't know. Um, so some of the folks that I I. I did like uh, the uh, 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 Gar and, and Judith uh, Reeves Stevens. Um, I, I, I tended to like their stuff, and they kind of they kind of split too. Um, maybe, maybe you can settle a bet here, but Doctor Floxy's smile. Right? Yes. Now, Gigi has bet me a few beers that it's CGI. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. When did, I, when did I, this my, happen? My, you think my, it's real? My theory is that what it is, it's they've got a couple of fish hooks in the corner uh -huh. of your mouth, yeah. and then two crew members with fishing string yeah. are pulling your mouth apart either side. Yeah, JJ, JJ, uh, uh, you you win some beers. Either yeah. way, I just want I just want to uh, 
point out here. He is trying to hustle me right now because that is the first I have ever heard of that bet. Well, but you're winning, JJ. I would let you're not being hustled. You are actually getting free beers. I, I, what I, I would I, say I is that, that point, yeah, but it's Gregor, Gregor is engaging in some very peculiar form of self sabotage. He's willing to give you free beer to make a joke, um, which I, I can appreciate. Uh, um, in fact, it cost ten thousand dollars that effect, yeah. and the wow. reason you only saw it twice is because as our ratings plummeted, our budget plummeted, and they couldn't afford it. Hmm. So you saw it at the very beginning, and you saw it at the very end, and the and you saw one other digital effect was you saw my head blow up. Oh like yes, that. yeah, yeah. But the one when you were on um, Earth in the bar. Yeah, yes, I was I was menaced by thugs, and in 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 times of great alarm, apparently my I was always stunned because in any given episode it was like I do what I can scale a wall, I have prehensile <laughs> nails, I have ridges down my back, my tongue reaches to my shoes. It was always I, I will convenient. say that thing wasn't there with dr fox when when it was there was one there was there was one episode when i'm walking around the ship naked i've basically everybody's been kind of put into a state of suspended animation because we're going through some quadrant of the galaxy where an intergalactic storm is going to fuck with their brainwave blah 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 blah. i've got the whole ship to myself so i'm walking around naked and and that was because chris black one time i was teasing him about the decon chamber i was saying how come everybody's running around the ship in their underwear all the time except me and he said ah you wouldn't do it and i said are you kidding i'm shameless he said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll write you an episode where you're naked. And I said, you do it, motherfucker. You do it. I don't think he wrote that episode, but I think the rumor got around the, uh, the uh, uh, writer's room that I was game. So anyway, they had me walking around the ship naked. And I, I said, hey, when I walk in to the uh, sick bay, the doors open, I should turn sharply to the left. And all the way across the room, a flower pot should fall to the ground. <laughs> think about it, John. <laughs> and, and they kind of looked at me like, no. We're not going to do that. He said, have you seen my fucking tongue? Come well, on. There's, there's an, uh, honestly, there's going to be, myself included, a lot of people listening to this with that image, and that image is going to stay with them now for the rest of their lives. <laughs> I just I just thought that would have been like, you know, it would have been subtle. Not, not, not everybody would have gotten it. But, you um, know. You don't, even have to, you don't even have to see the thing happen. They're just the words. The, it just paints that picture. I'm, pre- I'm reasonably confident that we can get our Star Trek artist on Twitter to, to animate that. I'm pretty confident we can get that done. <laughs> you said it's going to be Benny Hill theme song. Crash! Honestly, I mean, so you, you mentioned, like I say, the, the cost of the... The, the you know the digital animation for the, the you know for the effects like the you know the, the puffing and the, the smile and stuff like that. I mean, one of the things I think goes in say Discovery's favor and Picard's favor, for example, with the new Trek, is the budgets they're getting. Sure. Oh for, yeah. You know f- you know for their productions yeah. and stuff like that. Um, now, yeah, and 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 the, the you know the incredible develop technological developments in our industry that allow you know I mean the the if you go back and look at the original series I mean the effects were so fucking cheesy it's hard to watch in my opinion you know these days I mean it's remarkable what they're able to achieve you believe anything because they can pay, pay it off visually sometimes I think they become a little too much in love with that I think it's to the detriment mm-hmm. of the story like in I mean, the movies. 
as far as I'm concerned, the last 40 minutes of every fucking Star Trek movie is unwatchable because they always devolve into like, you know, bang, bang. I think, the, I think the last 40 minutes have a lot in common with the first 40 minutes of those movies as well, because the first 40 minutes are pretty much unwatchable as well. So, Yeah, it's just like, you know, I mean, the, what the original show had going for it when, when it worked, and it didn't always work, and some of the episodes were really, you know, don't stand up. But when it did work, it's, it was character driven. And and it was and they were they were you know social dramas mm-hmm. with sci-fi themes. It, it wasn't about bang bang shoot 'em up. When it evolved into bang bang shoot 'em up, usually those ones are the ones that are hard to watch, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think now you can pull off bang bang shoot 'em up a lot better technologically. But I have the same problem with bang bang shoot 'em up. I think it's lazy. It's like you know, it's like it's... write write your way to a decent fucking ending. Instead of forty minutes of bang bang shoot 'em up. Whenever I had to carry a pistol, I always would go. They kept having to tell me, "It's like you don't have to make the noise." It's like that's how I But yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. And to be honest with you, there are some parts of uh, Discovery that are extremely guilty of of this. Um. I don't think as far as a, to be a detriment to the story, but is it really, you know, is it really, really necessary? Um, but the you mentioned earlier about like uh, my biggest problem is that I find Klingons boring. I'm sorry. Oh. I just... <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You know, everybody to their own. Um, and, and they didn't used to be boring because they used to talk like normal people. It's like they had, you know, they look like Klingons, but they didn't. Now, whenever a Klingon talks, it, like it takes an hour for them to get through a scene. It's like. <laughs> It's like, Jesus fucking Christ. How to start an argument amongst Trekkies. Talk about Klingons. <laughs> I, I know. I know. It's an easy one to start off with. I know. I know. I intentionally push people's buttons because, as I say, I'm not here. I could, I, it's not, if it was in person, I wouldn't say it because I'm frail and, and slow, as you recall. But so on I, screen, I mean, you can... Like, you can say what you you can say what you want to say because it'll be you know it'll be me and Gregor that'll have to put out the fires on Spot the Week's Twitter page. Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not going to criticise anyone for Klingon criticising the Klingons and Discovery that can't speak as John so eloquently put it. They can't. They're yes, just... I'm not talking about all Klingons. I'm just talking about this iteration of Klingon. To me, they've gone too far. It's like it looks cool, but those scenes are interminable. And I say that I'm not a huge Discovery fan either. I've only watched the first six or so episodes. I, I'm engaged enough to keep watching, but I can't say it's destination television for me at this point. And I'm so I'm obviously well behind. I mean, to be to be fair for me, like I said, I do I have enjoyed watching it, but for me, it's is it one of those things where I can go back and watch it again and again and again? Like for example, I watch Star Trek Voyager over and over and over again. Um I can go back and watch Enterprise, not as much as what I would watch Voyager, to be fair, but still, I can go back and watch it and sit through an episode and enjoy it. I, I, I can't do that. I can't do that with Discovery, and it doesn't mean I don't well, give it, like give it. Give it twenty years. Give it, give it twenty years. You may, you, you know, you may. Maybe it's, it's okay, John. I love you. I watch Enterprise more than Voyager. I love you. Don't worry. <laughs> I don't, I don't, that's right. You know, my, my, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, as long as you're willing to buy me drinks, I don't care whether you like me. You know, 
And I, I know that's true for and that's true for discovery too. If some discovery actor came sidling up to you in a bar and said, "Hey, buddy, buy me a drink," you buy them a drink, even if you don't like their show, because you're enthralled to Star oh, Trek. You're hooked. You're and at. In fairness of it, um, I have to say that that I, I find the discovery actors at the conventions um, really good, actually. Like I mean, show, every single. To be honest like with the you. Actors. The vast majority of them, uh, I mean, and, and this goes back to the social media thing I spoke about earlier, is most of them, are, and like yourself, are very interactive with the fans, uh, very sort of um, active on Twitter and uh, Instagram and stuff like that. And Have you run into any of the dicks? Have you run into any of the ones that you just make you go like, fuck you? And oh. if so, who are they? Oh, no. <laughs> you mean shut up? <laughs> news, news flash, news flash, breaking I news. I don't think that's a news flash, really, is I, uh, it? <laughs> I, sat, I sat on Bill's lap once. Did you? I got the Shatner wave off, and then I sat and I was like, yes, yeah, so well, I was flying to a convention in Seattle with my wife, and uh, he happened to be on the same flight. And we landed at the airport, and the driver hadn't arrived yet. So I was standing there and you know, kind of checking my phone, and I got a little text, I'll be there soon. And Bill was some feet away, and he was like, oh, like, well, the driver, where's the driver? So I, I, I kind of sidled up, and I was, you know, going to say, hey, I just, you know, and he kind of gave me, like, the Statner wave off, which is like, like, I was, like, there bugging for an autograph. It was like, I'm on Star Trek, motherfucker. I might be on the least popular Star Trek show, but nonetheless, I'm on motherfucking Star Trek, and I just know what you're looking. You're looking at the driver. I just got, God damn it. So he was like, oh, well, well, well all right. So they come, they pick us up, and it's like a Toyota Tercel. And it was like, you know, the smallest fucking car ever made. It was the driver, some friend of the driver's, because, you know, he wanted to meet Bill Shatner. Me, Bill Shatner, my wife, and Bill Shatner's whoever, Amour, I don't know. And we were all crammed in this Toyota Tercel. It was like, I'm sitting on Bill Shatner's lap in a Toyota Tercel. Like, you know, he's already given me the Shatner wave off. And I could tell he felt bad. He said, you know, I'm meeting Leonard for lunch uh, do you have any recommendations so i gave him a couple of recommendations and he said would you like to join us it was like no you gave me the fucking wave off motherfucker i'm gonna join you for lunch uh, plus it's like i'm sorry but uh, you know leonard is probably not going to be too keen that you invited this guy that who sat on your lap in a tercel to lunch no i'm not going to bust in on your fucking lunch i realized it was probably every like star trek fan's wet dream to have dinner with kirk and spock and then i just said nah I also recommended the worst restaurant in town, by the way, which was also my small ass. You know where you should go. The Greasy Spoon Diner. It's fabulous. It's fabulous. And this is what you should order. Because I'm mean. Don't fuck with me. Don't give me the fucking wave off. Bill Shatner, I adore you. Of course, I would happily play you in a movie based on your life. Should that movie ever be made? I don't, I don't think I've had a bad experience with a Star Trek actor. I have to say, though, I'm not, I'm not big on the, the autographs and the photo opportunities at, at, um, at cons. And to be honest, at Vegas, you don't really need to because, you know, as you know yourself, you know, most of we're, we're you guys all just... Fucking, we're just hanging by the bar, I know. Yeah. Just um, yeah. yeah. I, mean, uh, I mean, I think... Well, particularly me and Ron Armstrong. Yeah, I um, I have um, not so. Who's much the biggest drinker at Star Trek? Let me ask you that question. Who's the biggest drinker you've ever encountered? And as, as Scots, I know that you had strong opinions about this. I've not uh, met anybody oh, but Dominic Keaton. I would say I would Do uh, guess. Yeah, Dominic. 
dominant. I mean, I, re I remember, um, I think it must have been the Thursday or Friday morning. It was the first couple of days of the con. And it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, I spoke to Dominic in the, the big hall outside the main the main convention centre and at the Rio. And uh, I, I walked away and I says, turned to say, I says, was he, was he pissed? And Sarah goes, I, I think he's out his head. <laughs> I think it's a I think it's a I think it's a, a British thing, it's an English thing, it's a Scottish thing, it's a Welsh thing, it's an Irish thing. It's like um we can we can drink. You know, it's one thing we 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 are very, very I think good you at. can drink. Um <laughs> but honestly, it's like see um every American movie and TV show that you see and they come to their friend's house and it's like, look, I brought some beers. And they turn up with a pack of six, sometimes even a pack of four beers. And they're not even big beers. They're like Dr. Pepper size cans, 500 mil beers. If you turned up to a party in Scotland with just six beers, you, you'd be laughed down the street. You wouldn't uh, get in. You wouldn't get, I mean, I'll give you an example. Pre-COVID lockdown, uh, we would go. I would go to Gregor's house, and we would uh, we would do recordings, or we would just watch Star Trek, or just have something to eat and meal and a laugh and a joke and stuff like that. If I didn't turn up with a twenty-four pack of Hop House Thirteen Guinness beer, <laughs> good heavens, good heavens! I I'm uh, I'm not. I'm not I, I confess, I'm not a huge beer drinker. Uh, oh, I, you're I, a, you are a connoisseur of the top shelf, my friend. Or a wine drinker, even. I'm just, I, no, I mean, you know, in, in, you know, if I'm at a, if I'm at a convention and somebody says going to buy you a drink, I would say I'll take a martini, I'll take a Manhattan, maybe I'll have oh. a scotch. Is that my maybe, wife? Maybe I'll have two or three. Maybe I'll have. That's my wife. That's my. <laughs> oh, hello. Hello. Come say hi. Well, I'm wearing a mask because we have a cleaning crew. Our pastor is over. This is my wife, Bonnie. These are two. These two gentlemen are in Edinburgh. Hello. Hello, oh, Bonnie. Hi. Yeah, so, Hi, we love Yeah, so sink down into the frame, honey, so they can see you. Oh. Right now, they're just seeing your bodice. Oh, I'm sorry. So, well, we'll well, next oh, time you're, next time you're in Edinburgh, I will take you to the best wine and whiskey bars. Yeah, you can take your mask oh. off, honey. It's just, it's, we're just, it's just. Oh, cool. okay, fine. See your whole thing. <laughs> you know, the first time I was in Edinburgh was for the um, uh, the Fringe Festival mm. before I met John in 1994. What play? What play were you doing? <clears throat> Seven blowjobs. And what happened oh, when, you you, when, you, when you went through immigration? What did it, they ask it's you? actually, it's a fantastic play. It's really fun and, and nutty and it's very political. Um, however, it, it was just after, I think, was that when the Lockerbie, it was when the plane? Uh, that was Lockerbie nice. Was 88, it was 88, 88, wasn't it? 88 was Lockerbie. 88, yeah. Uh, I wonder, something had happened uh, the year before so that the um, when you went to the airport, it, they were very, um, they ask very targeted questions and stuff, uh, and so in Scotland. And so when we landed, I had like parts of the, the set pieces and stuff that we were taking for the Fringe Festival. And the person at, at customs was asking me why I was there. And I said, I'm doing a play. And they said, oh, I said, I'm an actor. And they said, well, and what is the name of the play? And so I, I had to say very loudly, seven blowjobs. And they went, what? <laughs> so it was, it was kind of embarrassing, I have to say. Yeah, it's it's very it very much sounds like a fringe play, to be honest with you. <laughs> yes, I remember there was a, a French troupe of actors who was using the same space as we were, 
and I just remember they blew the the uh, blew up the um, lighting board. Somehow they 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 overloaded the whole thing. So when we went to to perform our play, it was completely fried. And I remember that very clearly. Those French actors. Uh, the last oh. time we were there, we were just there for shits and giggles, so we didn't do anything. We just wandered around the city and had yeah. had a grand time. It's beautiful. You have There's... castles. You have a big castle. And cats. You have tons of cats wandering around the streets. My wife and I have a penchant for strolling around trying to find stray cats, just to kind of cozy up to them, make friends with them. So Scotland, Scotland was a great place to do that. I, it's hard to do in Los Angeles. We don't let our cats outside because we've got coyotes everywhere. Mm. So. I didn't mean to interrupt your conversation. I was just telling no, you. No, you're, you're welcome. I called the bull. Oh, yeah. We, well, I want to hear some of our domestic travails. Our washing machine overflowed. So is he coming today? Uh, he's going to call me back. Fabulous. To that's Tony, our plumber. Tony. Oh. Tony. All right. All right, thank nice you, my darling. Nice to meet you. Uh, <laughs> by the way, Bonita Friderisi, who played a Borg on a second season episode in which the Borg appeared, the episode that some people think we jumped a shark. And she was also um, General Beckman on the show um, Chuck, for anybody yes. who ever watched I, Chuck. I did, I, did, I did see that. I did check memory alpha i did actually do some research for this oh you did oh yes her. yes 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 she's she we uh, we go to conventions together she started uh she didn't want to go to conventions at first and then she uh, she started standing in the back heckling me and then eventually i got her on stage and then i just handed her to the mic and i left and went to the bar and she did the whole fucking thing by herself <laughs> now we have a very we have a low vaudeville dog and pony show that features everything but cream pies and seltzer bottles which is great fun for us and not so much fun for the audience well, because they live in constant fear it sounds, sounds like a fringe show to me, John. Sounds it, like it, a fringe show. It's uh, well, the part of me that always wanted to be a baggy pants comedian is like you know has been set free by Star Trek, perversely. Who's fun? Well, um, come get yourself it, a fringe show. Ex well, you know what? Um, yeah, too it, lazy. Edinburgh, like you said, you've you've been to Edinburgh. You've come to Edinburgh for the fringe. You've uh, you've come to Edinburgh for the shits and giggles. Um, like I say, next as soon as we can get, you know, everybody can sort of travel freely and we get to some kind of normality. Uh, you would be more than welcome to to join us um, uh, on the, you know, I the accept, album or whatever. I, I I always say yes when people are prepared to take me out and get me pie eyed. I'm not going to oh. drink eighteen thousand beers, but I will definitely have. Although I'm not going to order a Manhattan in Edinburgh. I remember from the last time I tried to get a Manhattan in Edinburgh. Maybe this has changed. But two things you guys were not great at was pizza and Manhattans. Like, you see that um, you're going, the, you're going to couple, the wrong places so. There are a couple of cocktail <laughs> bars. There are a couple of cocktail bars yeah. that are specifically. I had good luck with martinis because you, you can't fuck up a martini. One of the um, you freeze? Did I? Uh, yeah. uh, yes, we all did that. I think we. Uh, ap apologies, listeners and viewers, for that uh, yeah. technical disruption. Um, we were all taking the, things... the same pregnant pause. One of the things that, um, have you, uh, when you were in Edinburgh, did you ever come across a drink by the name of a Gerda? Mm, doesn't ring a bell, but it was some years back. What's it's, a Gerda? Uh, a Gerda is vodka and iron brew, which is, uh, if, uh, is a Scottish beverage. Uh, mm -hmm. Bit like, it's like our, it's like our national it's, soft drink, isn't it? <laughs> It's, it's our Coca-Cola. Yes, Coke it basically is. Coke is to the US, Iron Brew is to Scotland. 
Okay. No, I had no, didn't come across that, but I, I mean, I'm willing to give it a good old college try as long as I can, you know, reject it after a sip and move on to a drink. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll probably reject it when you watch it being poured, to be honest with you. Well, I remember at one bar where it was like order of Manhattan, it was like, what is that you're putting in that? That's not, that doesn't belong in a Manhattan. I think they made it with dry vermouth, which, which is like, no. Um, but so anyway, no, I probably won't be consuming beers with you. I'm, I'm much more of a, a hard liquor guy. Oh, good. Uh, you know, um, do you like the occasional bourbon, my, my good man? I do indeed. I do indeed. I do indeed. I'll drink some Irish. I'll drink something with a little, a little water back. Um, but uh, what you got there? Long Branch. I don't think I know that one. That's ah, so, uh, wild turkey. Wild turkey. All right. Yes. Yeah, so no, I'm not. Nor am I a uh, you know a, a connoisseur. I mean, the people who spend 150 dollars on a on, on a bottle of bourbon or who do like you know tequila tastings, it's like, yeah, I'm not. Uh, um, I'm, I'm the same. A- I'm the same. Uh, honestly, it's like it, I enjoy the taste. I'm by no means one of these people yeah. that can nose it and get the smells and the yeah, flavors. Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know. The people who stick their noses in glasses of wine always make me laugh too. I mean, I, it smells good. Yeah, it smells good. It's like um, I'm getting. I'm I don't. Getting but it's flowers. like don't touch your nose to the liquor. I don't want to. I don't want to drink that after you've had your snout in it. I'm getting. My dad flowers. became. I'm getting. Yeah, it's robbery. Yeah, I know. The Scottish guy in the corner. I do, I'm getting pissed. I do admire the guys. I mean, I don't mean to say that I think there aren't people who actually can legitimately do that. And it's just to me, it's like oh, it's, it's a skill. It's a skill. Um, what was what was it? I, I did a distillery tour one time, and to become a master distiller, uh, so you have to be able to nose do the 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 mixings and the ratios by by sight, smell, uh, you know. Because obviously, if you were trying to taste it every time, you'd never get anything done because you'd be just on the floor, Paulus. But I remember it was something like t- uh, nearly a fifteen-year apprenticeship, fifteen years. Wow. Thereabouts. I might be a little bit out, but it's wow. it's a long time to go from yeah. nothing to becoming a master distiller because you have to do it, like I say, fifteen or so years in order to master the skill. To be able to I have be... I have I have a question for you a Scotland centric question for you um so a couple of questions uh, one wh- where to the um t- to the casual traveler wh- where would you recommend that one go in Scotland that is that is sort of like ah you haven't seen Scotland if you haven't gone to some some place off the beaten path some place that people don't appreciate appropriately what what would be like your recommendation to uh, hmm. go on Greg I'll let you well sky sky is the obvious one um, but it's, Sky, it's so fucking beautiful. Sky's becoming a little bit problematic because obviously it's got a small population. There's not a lot of accommodation, and thanks to various TV shows and films that have been filmed there over the years, it's become a magnet for people just yeah. traveling there, and it's become ridiculous price-wise for accommodation. Um, but you know, I don't know. I don't we got there before that had quite happened. This is some years back, but yeah. Yeah, well, could... this, this is unbelievable. Now, Sky has two Michelin star restaurants. Wow. We you did know. not go to those. Yeah, Sky has two Michelin star restaurants. Wow. Glasgow doesn't have two Michelin star restaurants. Manchester so, doesn't have is, two is star there, Michelin is there a, restaurants. Is there a place that still is sort of, you know, to you kind of wonderful, but a little I, undiscovered? I think, I, 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 undiscovered is a tough thing, but I, I think beyond Sky, I think what is well worth seeing is just going back over the mainland to the Kyle of Lacalche. 
mm-hmm. and just driving mm-hmm. as much as you can the coast all the way up the northwest and then I along was, the north coast. I was going to mention that because uh, a few years ago uh, they actually officially named this route as a tourist route, but they called it the North Coast 500. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm I'm going to assume it's because it's around about 500 miles, give a give a take. Um, but like Gregor says, you start off at the Kyle of Lacalche, you go all the way up to the north, very far north of Scotland, um, towards uh, John O'Groats and and back down again and stuff like that. And if you, I, I mean, I know, like I say, it's a bit of an American um, sort of, uh, I can't remember the word for it, uh, stereotype is of road trips you know there was yeah. long wonderful road trips and stuff like that if you are into that sort of thing then the north uh, coast yeah, 500. Absolutely. although i have to say one of the most terrifying things i i've ever done is tried to drive on the left hand side of the road on the isle of sky oh on the it's correct like, side of the road yes yeah and there's like there really isn't a side it's just like there it's a, a tiny side. road with turnouts and 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 it was also a stick shift which you know neither my, my wife nor i had driven in years how many times so, like, did you go to change gear and open the door <laughs> that didn't happen, but I felt like we were constantly on the verge of plummeting off a cliff. It was like, oh, I was so you you did you did that in um, I would say a reasonably uh, reasonably sized uh, car, like a like a medium sized saloon or a uh, what you would call a, a compact or something like that. Maybe I, I, I'm sure it was. I imagine it was a compact. I don't remember. I just I, I remember that we had not. You know, you th- you try and think of everything when you're traveling. Yada yada yada. And we we booked a car, but we had not made sure that we had booked an automatic. And so the only so, car they had. Was so that was quite an experience for you, wasn't it? Now yeah, imagine I mean, imagine doing those roads in something that's eight feet wide and forty feet long. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've no, done, I've no, no, done no. This. <laughs> no, no, no. But at least you're driving on the right side of the road from your perspective, which is which is what is the other terrifying thing is we were driving in New Zealand, and that was another instance where it's just like you know you just have to constantly. Have you driven in the states by any chance? Have you ever? Uh, driven Gregor in the has. Gregor has. I have. Did I have. you find that terrifying, Gregor? Did you get used to it? Uh, I, I was okay in the left-hand drive car, and uh, to be honest, um, I mean, the first time I drove in the States was actually in Vegas. I picked up a Camaro uh, uh, McLaren, um, and for complex logistical reasons, we actually had a room booked in the Rio the same night we had a room booked, I can't remember the name of it, but the, the town that's on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Laughlin? I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically, I'll call it a town, it's basically a collection of hotels about seven miles from the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Flagstaff? Uh, no, it wasn't Flagstaff. Uh, it was a, t- it's a tiny place because we drove through Flagstaff. But yeah, I found it okay. Even driving, they said don't drive up the strip, but I thought I'm a tourist. It's my first time. It's actually my first time in America. I'm going to drive up the strip. You know, having been 10 hours on an airplane from Manchester yeah. to Vegas, jumped in a car and I drove up the strip. Uh, I thought, oh my god, everything is so goddamn plastic. It's so fake. Um, but I enjoyed the. I enjoyed the. It's Vegas. It's Vegas. You knew that. I mean, I you knew what you were getting into. I, I, I mean, Vegas is apart from the convention. Vegas itself is not a typical holiday. I like to go to places like the Galapagos Islands or Vietnam or hopefully touch with Cambodia in November. That, that's my, more my type of holiday. Um, but yeah, I mean, I found it okay because everything was a grid in Vegas itself. 
And then, you know, the roads were so straight. It was so straightforward. But, you know, it's not, I mean, I, I can understand. Yeah. I mean, if you were to drive a car in Edinburgh, I, I'm getting terrified to drive a car in Edinburgh because they keep well, changing New, the roads. New, New Zealand was interesting too because they, that, that's, you know, it's. Uh, uh, <laughs> Have you been in New Zealand? No, it's on my to do list. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I've already, beautiful. My, my limit of exploration um, is the furthest I've ever been is Croatia. Oh, that was I, that was and that was driving. That was I was working. Uh, so I hear that's gorgeous. You know something? It is beautiful. Uh, we went to a place just south of uh, Porec, I think it's pronounced. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, just on the Adriatic coast there. Oh, it is stunningly beautiful. It really is. Have um, you been to uh, Mostar? When you've been down that way then, JJ? No, I have only been there yeah. once and it was literally uh, a 21 hour drive from Calais in France to Parec in Croatia, literally non-stop, only stopping to change drivers and we were there for four days and back out again. So uh, we didn't really get to see a lot wow. of the Right, right. Well, let, let me fire John's question back at him. Go ahead. Um, so yes. the, okay, so I've, I've done the Grand Canyon. Yes. I've, I've done Death Valley, uh, which in a way I actually enjoyed more than the Grand Canyon. Mm. Um, don't want to belittle the Grand Canyon, but when you've travelled a lot, I think it's maybe not quite as... It's maybe not quite the thing that the American Tourist Board will, will have, um, I think. If, if depends upon what you were looking for. If you were looking for scenic, I would say driving up the Pacific Coast mm. on Highway 1 is, is absolutely fabulous. Um, Montana is uh, absolutely there's a train trip you can take through the canadian rockies that kind of uh uh you pick it up in vancouver canada which is also an absolutely fabulous city and maybe one of my favorite north american cities um seattle i think is seattle and portland the pacific northwest i think is is really you know sort of one of the gem-like parts of america um new england vermont during the fall the coast of maine um, New Orleans, the uh, Smokies, uh, and the Appalachian Trail. Um, America is beautiful. Um, you know, it's it, <laughs> you just have to avoid the people. Um, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't we'll, say we'll, that. we'll edit that bit out. No. Um, uh, right, uh, guys, um, I hate to be that person, but I don't, no, know no, you, it's time. It's time. I don't know if you remember that we're actually doing a podcast right now. <laughs> Just <laughs> right, I know you're gonna have to. Oh, I know oh, by the time oh, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna get to the end of this. It's like you know, people are gonna say, "Is he still fucking talking?" Jesus fucking Christ! Oh, Maybe honestly, you should, you should just like like introduce us in five minute segments for the next ten years. Well, I, I, oh, to be honest, we, we've got a lead. We, we could um, we could sort of split this up anyways and whatnot. But this is an absolutely fantastic finale to the to the season. Um, one thing I want to say on live on air while it's being recorded, I'm putting you on the spot right now. If we asked you again in the future, would you come back and join us again sometime? Of course I would. Of course I would. I don't think I let you ask any questions, so you probably would be, you know. Um, wait till I have a guest spot on Discovery, and then you can come and I can, you know, you can really enjoy having. Oh, oh, I hate that. We could, we could possibly. <laughs> We could possibly do a a sort of one of those um, all is revealed sort of uh, 
type episodes where the, the gloves are off, there's no holds barred, you know. Uh, well, that wasn't this. I must have been asleep. Being, <laughs> you were being gentle with me? You were oh, being we were, delicate? We, no we were being gentle. We were being extremely gentle. Oh, I'm so, I had no idea. Um, so it, I'll, I'll say in closing that if, if, uh, if you share some of the social media shit for the Hollywood Food Coalition, you know, I'm always uh, uh, elated yep. when obviously people have a lot of different places they can make their contributions, but if people have any interest in supporting that particular organization and supporting the work, you guys will share how to do that and, and smooch and thank you for that. And how, how would people get involved with that if they want, if they can? Get if you're in Los Angeles and you wanted to get actually physically involved, we need people to come in every day to help cook and serve and rescue and share food. Um, and the easiest way to do that is to sign up online at hofoco.org. That's ofoco.org. And of course, I realize that, you know, there's so many different ways that you can get involved in terms of making a financial contribution. So I, I you know, freely recognize, why am I going to have to contribute to an organization in Los Angeles? I don't live in Los Angeles. But, you know, um, uh, I, I can't answer that question except because Dr. Flox asked you to. I, I think for go. all the reasons we discussed, John, for all the reasons we discussed, that's why you can make a contribution. All right. All right. So, um, you know something, I mean, one of the things we, uh, I said to Gregor before we started the podcast, this is I, I wanted to make sure, and that's why I asked you if you had any details that we, um, we have been contacted, so we've got the details, yes. uh, and we can uh, get them into the show notes so that if anybody wants to uh, look up the website and check them out, or as you say, get involved, whether that be financially or physically, um, you can do that through the links that we will put in the show notes and we will uh, tweet the information as well. Um, and it's the least we can do for you and for the fine people that you help through uh, the Food Coalition and all that. And it's the least we can do for that. So we're more than happy to uh, to blow that trumpet yeah. and spread that word. So Much um, obliged. God bless you for doing that as well. I mean, like I say, it's something that's a million miles away from us. But in reality, it's, it's a close, you know, it's still pretty close, yeah. Yeah. you know, because it's a human thing. So brilliant. Fantastic. On that note, thank you very much for joining us um, on Spock of the Week. Uh, we do really appreciate it. And, My pleasure. Um, and I hope you've had just as much fun as we have. Uh, I don't know how much you fun are. have you had. Oh, tremendous. Uh, I mean, you could you could probably notice when I fanboyed out about halfway through the podcast there, so uh, I do apologise. <laughs> um, was, was that when you froze? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> that was good. That was. I mean, oh, I mean, I'm not an actor. Well, I'm, a, I'm a professional actor. <laughs> Look, I'm so, watching. As always, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, if you're listening to this, children, where are your parents? Uh, second of all, we can be followed on Twitter. All three of us, um, Gregor at Crabbit Ginger. Myself at Albert Android, and I'm going to. I, <laughs> I, I'm going to that's it. I was going to ask. I was like, "Damn, I forgot right. to write this down." I, I don't. I don't. Free, I frequently don't remember it myself. Uh, all the different passcodes and nicknames and what have you. J Billingsley. That's with an E S L E Y sixty. Because there I'm you go. Sixty. 
is that is... I, like I feel like I feel like a baby right now. I genuinely you feel like I mean, a baby. Yeah, I mean, sixty. Gregor's fifty. I'm only fifty-one. Fifty. All right, fifty-one. I was being I was being nice. <laughs> and you're and 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 what what are you like? Twenty-nine. I am thirty-three. Thirty-three. You are a baby. You are yeah. a baby. Still wet behind the ears. Uh, you've got so much of life ahead of you. I have indeed. So much of life ahead. Of course, she died young. So, anyway, oh, on that, that cheery note. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, irony. So, the irony. Leave on a leave on a happy note, and a, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> it really has. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. Uh, as we said, this is our season finale of season two of Spot of the Week. Um, Gregor mentioned in a previous episode that I am taking a step back. Um, and I will be for season three, uh, namely because um, at the time of recording, as of tomorrow, uh, I will have a brand new baby daughter uh, in my arms. So, yes. Um, so that's the reason why I will not be... Your own child or are you stealing a child? Shh. We're stealing. No, it's, 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 my, it's my own, yes. Although we have suspected that the postman might be involved somewhere, but... Um, uh... No, the uh, she will be she will be born tomorrow. Um, so as of this point, um, I will be taking a step. What's her name? She's going to be called Alanda. Alanda, Alanda. Yeah, uh, it's a Alanda. name after it's a name after my father, uh, my partner's father. Uh, so it's the female version of Alan. So that's where uh, that's where that's coming from. So she will be born tomorrow. Um, so I'll be taking a step back to spend time with my daughter and my son. And yeah, uh, so this will be the last time you hear me in the podcast for a little while. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, with season three, where Gregor will be joined by uh, our friend and my stand-in, James Golding, and a few other people along the way. Uh, so thank you for listening. Thank you, John, for joining us. Uh, and stick around for a little bit after the recording and um, if you don't mind if you want um, just for a little casual post-match discussion if you would be sure. if you, yeah brilliant um so yeah and for everybody listening at home and for you guys that are lucky enough to be watching this on video thank you for watching us and live long and prosper i've been john he's been gregor and he has been john billingsley oh. Oh, is that my cue? I'm sorry. I was I, I hadn't realized that you were asking me to continue speaking. I thought that we were done. I also realized that in the bottom of my screen it says Bonita Friderisi. That's not me. That's my wife. I just never bothered to change my name. Are we actually? Is this actually going to be seen, or is it just going to be the audio recording? Um, it's the um, for the spot of the week listeners. It's going to be the audio recording. Um, the video most of the humor has come through my facial contractions, and I and now I'm realizing I that, know. that you know. You've got an actor here. You can't deny it. I've been him. making well, all sorts here's, of here's the faces, thing, right? uh, expressive eyebrow raising, and okay. all for not, all for nothing. <laughs> well, I'll <laughs> tell you what. Here we go. A fabulous face right now. He's imitating my smile. Well, here none we of go. us are wearing any. None of us are wearing any clothing. I I'm stunned <laughs> that the wow the people who I'll are hearing this, not seeing this are only getting a fraction of the enjoyment that was possibly available to them under other circumstances. That's all I can say.
Well, I think we have been we have been press ganged into making this a YouTube video as well. I will get onto that as well. <laughs> is, is this the cover picture? There you go. There you go. I mean, it's not like I washed my hair or anything. I'm not going to say that, you know, I cleaned up especially for you guys, but I did put on a relatively clean shirt. Jesus fucking Christ. I can't believe this. I did my hair and everything. All right. All right. See, now at some point you're going to have to actually stop recording because I'll just keep nattering and here for hours. Yes. It's like one of the, the show that doesn't actually have an ending. You it's keep a long we're trying to what make you, up for we're trying to make up for enterprise being cut short by making this really it. long. Well, yeah, well, you don't actually know this is all post uh, post credits. So, <laughs> oh, so you've already stopped recording? No, no, no. We've left this in. We'll leave this in. No, no this is it. This is it. This is definitely this the is end. This is a real I'm, end. I'm pressing this the button now. I'm pressing the button now. Going three, and this two, is, and now. One.